What makes a bona fide fantasy ace pitcher anyway, and who are they? I'll ask Mike Gianella, fantasy writer and podcaster at Baseball Prospectus, about that and a whole lot more, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 28th. It's show number 25 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Mike Gianella, a fantasy writer and podcaster at Baseball Prospectus, discussing why we play fantasy baseball, impact call-ups, trade pieces, bona fide aces, some short season observations about pitchers and hitters, and his boons and banes. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports, Ray Murphy covering the National League, including injuries to Walker Bueller, Steven Strasburg, and Chris Bryant, and Ray Murphy also doing double duty with his news from the American League, including the new Texas outfielder call-up, Leotis Tavares, as well as more Yankees injuries, the Boston bullpen, and more American League stories. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in Hey Taxi, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at New York Yankees starter Clark Schmidt. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about opportunities at the halfway point in the short season. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The season is one month in and halfway over. Or is it? We gotta talk some baseball. Well, you might have read in the media that Major League teams reached the halfway point in the 2020 season earlier this week, but it ain't necessarily so, and I'll be talking about the opportunities that might arise from that in my extra innings commentary later on. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella, a fantasy writer and podcaster at Baseball Prospectus. Mike, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me back on. I always like to start by asking how your teams are doing. Of course, in this case, we have teams that you drafted in March, teams that you drafted in July. How are you doing overall? Um, to be honest, not that well. Uh, I'm not in first place anywhere. Uh, there's a couple leagues where I'm toward the top, like in third or maybe even second. Uh, but overall, it's been a struggle, mostly because the drafts I did were early. Uh, a lot of injuries and the leagues where I've had pitching injuries, I've noticed like league where you have a hitting injury or two, you can kind of recover. Um, like in labor NL, for example, uh, I have Steven Strasburg and uh, Kirby Yates. Uh, that's almost impossible to come back from. It's kind of painful because the offense there is is doing great and near the top in almost every category, but the pitching is so buried that, you know, with this short season, it's going to be next to impossible to come back. Did you draft any July teams? I drafted two late teams uh, at Baseball Prospectus. We we had an in-house uh, draft. Uh, I think it was in late June or early July, and it was a slow draft. That was interesting because we changed a couple of the categories because of the short season. We went from it was a five by five, but we went from saves to saves plus holds, and we scrapped uh, wins for innings. 
And then I have a home league that we that's an AL four by four and old school league that I've been in forever and has been around forever. Uh, we it's a keeper league, but we just mothballed the keeper side of it and we did a draft. I'm not doing well, especially in the home league. Actually, I, the pitching there has has stunk. I think it was Charlie Morton and Matthew Boyd or Matt Boyd did me in. Oh. Uh, so yeah, even there, even there where we redrafted, I haven't done particularly well. We're both in the Tout Wars American League only auction, Mike, and you went into it, this was in March, with a no-starter approach because they changed the rules to uh, eliminate the innings requirement. And, of course, at the time, we all thought there'd be 162 games for that strategy to play out. How did the huge reduction in games played, do you think, affect the viability of that strategy? Well, in some ways it helps because the you know the odds of like for example in that league I've I've lost Roberto Osuna to injury and I already released him and reclaimed the fab and he's gone for the year. Um, in some ways it helps because you know an injury like that over the course of a full season would would really hurt. Um, in some ways though it kind of hurts because I'm I'm having some struggles on offense and in a long season it, it's easier to pick players up and and churn through. I'm kind of finding I'm in a rough position where already I don't have that time to churn and and hit on a free agent. Uh, my game is usually patience. I'm usually very good at at kind of looking at the season as a marathon, as people tend to drop out and lose interest. So that's that's kind of hurt me there and in a lot of formats. I was wondering. As a strategic matter, when you look at a, the shorter season, I wondered when I thought about your roster whether you'd gain uh, an advantage because you had all those sort of Lima quality relievers, really good good pitchers who are in relief roles because as we've seen and as we expected we would see, there's a lot of wins that are not going to starting pitchers in the short season but are going to those relievers. Have you noticed uh, any benefit in that regard? No, or it's been a slight benefit, and there's a couple reasons for that. Is one, there, there's variability to begin with in relief wins. So with the expanded rosters, you know, I know they started with 30 at the beginning, and now they're down to 28. Those wins have been distributed even more than they would be. Um, the second reason is I've mostly benefited in saves. Like I had Zach Britton. Uh, who was getting saves for a while. And Sergio Romo has gotten some saves. I mean, the saves are great. And with Ozuna out, I need them, but it hasn't parlayed to a wins benefit. And then the other thing is, you know, with pitchers, a lot of these wins are coming from starters only going three or four innings at the beginning. So you got a guy like Birch Smith who was getting wins early. And, you know, I'm not going to rattle off every one of these relievers, but these are relievers nobody had. So no, I haven't really benefited. I, I, I wish I had, but the randomization kind of, was even more random for a lack of better way of putting it, you know, because of those circumstances. And of course, the other thing that I've noticed in all the leagues I'm playing is in is it's kind of weird. We're a month into the season, so we know that there's going to be a lot of variability, but we're a month from the end of the season as well. And so you have to start thinking about, you know, what adjustments you can make in that regard. And in our league, gosh, guys are bouncing up and down eight or nine points in a day still, uh, in the categories, especially in the ratio categories, uh, for a while, I think you were first and I was last, and now we're both pretty much in the middle, and uh, the categories are tightening up. Uh, I think that the the main takeaway I'm going to have from this year is, you know, when you knock 100 games out of the schedule per team, you're just increasing the randomness and the luck element a lot. 
You are, although um, there, I don't know if you saw this. There was an interesting discussion on Twitter, and um, it was about TGFBI, but, but we wound up getting into, which is the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, which I'm sure many of your listeners know. But we got into a discussion of the impact of the short season and when things stabilize. And Ariel Cohn of Fangraphs, and I, I did a similar study in the offseason or after this happened, we came up to came to a similar conclusion, which is things tend to kind of normalize around 75 games or so. So we're playing 60. That's not quite the same, but you'd be surprised at how much things normalize them. And this is what's tough about it. Right now, things are not normal. Like right now, for example, you know, Mike Trout, oddly enough, who I mentioned because he's on my tout team, he's got a 333 on base percentage, which, which is okay. But for Mike Trout, that's very bad. And and that's a, you know, he was a linchpin of my strategy because I need to win on base percentage. I need to, you know, clean up on offense. And that should stabilize. Like in the next month, that number should go up. Um, and that's true, you know, not just for him, but for a lot of players, like players off to, to fast starts should slump. But, you know, because it's 60 games, you know, we know this from regular seasons. Sometimes a player is a great first half. It's not just a great month. And that's where, you know, some of these these changes are going to happen. And it is going to be somewhat more unpredictable than, than a full season, without a doubt. And one other comment that I have about it is, over the last little while, I've been uh, reading various uh, touts and experts who have been plumping the idea of having a six-month-long season, assuming there's a six-month-long season in the real game, but redrafting every month so that you can make it, make those kind of adjustments because it's a, a what they say is it's a better test of your baseball acumen that you've been able to follow the you know the nuances of of rosters and the nuances of how players are playing, and I I was actually thinking about trying to join one of those kind of leagues, and this experience has really soured me on the idea because, gosh, we're going to get a two month season that's pretty volatile, and and the the monthly draft situation seems to be a case where you're just asking for more volatility even if you're adding it up over a longer period of time that's true but you know something else about this season too is you know we we've had you know teams losing like whole chunks of time due to covid um you know in the past week you know as we're talking about this there there's been i hate this euphemism but social unrest in the united states so games have been pushed back because of that Uh, you've had individual players lose time because of covid diagnoses you've had pitcher injuries really spike um you know because of the the abbreviated spring training or summer camp so in a normal 162 game season where you broke it out into one month stretches I think there would be a little more stabilization. Yes, there'd be some more randomization. I do prefer the full 162-game season. I think there's something to be said for, like I said, having that patience, determination, having that vision. You know, a lot of, a lot of people, I don't think in our expert leagues, but a lot of people in a home league, you know, in April, mid-May, they panic and they give up or, or they make some wild and you know crazy trades. Really, that that's that's the test of a full season. Is like, okay, well, you know, it's May fifteenth, and I'm in ninth place. Like, can I win? What can I do to win? How can I come back? And and that's the part of this I really enjoy, which is you know is going to be missing this year, no matter what the outcome. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, on your most recent uh, Baseball Prospectus podcast, it's called Flags Fly Forever, and I highly recommend it. You had a I'm going to call it a really charming interview with the actress Ellen Adair. She's been on a lot of shows people recognize, Homeland, Billions, The Sinner, and others. Uh, how did you get her as a guest? Where did that come from? I just asked her on Twitter. So she started following me a while back. Like uh, she, She's into fantasy baseball, too. She's in, a, she's in a few leagues, which if you listen to the podcast, you heard. But she, she's in a big expert dynasty league that Scott White of CBS Sports runs. And... 
you know, so she follows a lot of fantasy people. Uh, I saw she had been on um, Sleeper in the Bus a few times. So I just, I am, I just sent her a direct message and said, Hey, do you want to come on the podcast? And, you know, she both, you know, this was true on the podcast, you know, but even beforehand, you know, she was delightful. Like she was so nice about it. Um, you know, she said she'd be honored to come on. I mean, I, I felt a little, you know, I got a little bit of a big head about that, but yeah, I mean, that's how that came about. And I, I think uh, the delight and joy that she takes out of baseball was really a tonic in these days when so much of it's going wrong and guys are sick and guys are mad and guys aren't playing and all this kind of stuff. It re she really was a breath of fresh air and she knows her baseball, which is the important thing. And, and you talked with Ellen about how she views her fantasy baseball uh, habit, I guess we all call it that, in the context, though, of her larger fandom for baseball itself. And she had a really interesting take, and I'll let listeners find the pod and listen for themselves about that. But it made me think that my own balance between how much fantasy and the real game sort of offset each other in my own life has shifted over the years. When I started, it was probably... 90% baseball and 10 fantasy because it was just a way to, you know, enjoy baseball in a different way. And as I've got older and as I've got less connected to the game for various reasons, um, I think it's like more like 50-50 or 60-40 in favor of fantasy. What has your experience been? It's probably tilted a lot toward fantasy over the years and, and maybe even higher than, than yours. Like it, it's maybe gone like 70, 75% for me. And, you know, some of it depends. So I'm, I'm a Mets fan. So some of it depends on how well they're doing. Uh, like in 2015, for example, when they made it to the World Series, it, it probably shifted to 50 50. And that was a year that I was doing really well. Um, I won a couple expert leagues, you know, in addition to my Mets doing well. But in a year that they're doing poorly or not contending, I, I have to admit, like, I'll, I'll probably wouldn't just turn on a random Dodgers Padres game, you know, at 11 o'clock at night if it wasn't for fantasy. Um, something I'll kind of add to that is, you know, during the hiatus, I, I do think that my interest in the history of the game. Uh, bumped up. Uh, I started doing a, a 2006 simulation. Um, I didn't get through it. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I, I'm in the middle of a 2006 Blue Jays uh, Devil Rays game back when they were the Devil Rays. But I started watching games on YouTube. Like I started following some other aspects of the game. So yeah, the, the hiatus kind of cultivated my interest again in the history. Not that I was had stopped being interested, but it made me realize like why I love real baseball in addition to the, the fantasy side of it. Yeah, when I started, uh, I was a Cincinnati Reds fan, and they weren't that good. And maybe that was one of the reasons I got into fantasy. But I was in an American League only 4x4, four four, and I deliberately chose not to be in National League or mixed because the one time before that I had tried it, I ended up, you know, got an exposed pitcher facing the Reds. I need him to win. I need them to win their independent race. It just sucked because it felt like, you know, whatever happened, it was not going to work out in my favor the way I would like. And uh, as time has gone on, the Reds haven't been that good. I mean, this was after they last won the World Series uh, by a year or two, I guess. And you're right. When your team isn't doing well, it's just a kind of easy to lose your focus on what they're doing and move on because you still enjoy the game. And fantasy, as Ellen said, gives her a reason to tune into a game, as you said, with that you wouldn't ordinarily watch. But because you've got Fernando Tatis on your roster, you want to see what he's going to do. Yeah, there, there's that. And, you know, the other thing, too, and I think I might have mentioned this on, on the podcast with Ellen, 
you wind up appreciating players and teams and, and storylines you otherwise might just have never paid attention to. And I'm not, I'm not even talking about players on your teams. Like I'm just talking about players that you might be seeing in a game you might have not watched in a million years. You're like, wow, this player is good. You know, Jake Cronenworth is, is really good. You know, you know, Shed Long, I, I like watching him play. You know, these are players I, I never in a million years would have had any interest in. And particularly this year with the divisional, you know, divisions all being you know, segmented where the West is only playing the West, the Central is only playing the Central. So fantasy has appreciated my, you know, overall love of the game and individual players. And I think it would have otherwise. I think I'd be a more, you know, one team fan where I have some focus on the teams in my division and my league, but wouldn't ha- have nearly as much knowledge and love for the game as I do because of fantasy. Yeah, for me, the player's Kyle Lewis. I have him on my tout team and, and on one other team, and he, he's fun to watch because he's he's productive and he's exciting, a fairly young guy. I imagine, I think I got him for $3 in tout. I don't imagine he'll go for that next year if things continue. Uh, Ellen also confessed in your podcast to a very competitive nature contributing to her enjoyment of fantasy baseball, and I was interested in your reply because you said your motivation is not necessarily to win your league. What were you talking about, about your motivation, and how do you think you arrived at it? Well, I mean, to, to kind of clarify that, I do want to win. Sure. I mean, that, that's, that's something I'm, I'm driven by. But I, I think over the years, I, I've gone from that being a desire and a hell-bent desire and really pushing for that to really wanting to have fun, like really wanting to enjoy you know, the, the company of the people I'm, I'm in a league with. Um, I've written about this at Baseball Prospectus, but uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we, we had one present and one past member of, of our league pass away. And, you know, that, that really, I, I think kind of, you know, we're all getting older, of course, but that really kind of made me think and realize, wow, it's, it's the times with these people that I, I really appreciate. And yes, I want to win. And, you know, I'm not saying this to be a modest, like I'm, I think I'm pretty good at this, but I don't beat myself up nearly as much for a bad finish. And the other part of that was if I've tried really hard and, you know, I have a year where, you know, things start out badly, there's injuries and I finish in third or fourth place that's really good. In the past, I might've looked at that like, Oh, you know, I only finished fourth big deal. Who cares? There's something to be said for working toward that, you know, especially like labor or tout where you're, you're playing against a, a bunch of really tough people. I feel exactly the same way. When I started, I, I was, you know, devoting so much psychic energy for want of a better term to winning, trying to win the, the league that I finished second one year and I was despondent. And uh, as I got older, got married, had a family, started to put things more in perspective, uh, I think that helped. And uh, you've mentioned you've won competitive experts leagues and uh, I've come close. Uh, I wonder if your approach, do you think, reduces the pressure we put on ourselves to do well, that it's better for you as a player to be less gung-ho and putting all that pressure on yourself to, to win and maybe it helps you be a be a better fantasy player even if you're not actually trying quite as hard. I don't know if it helps me be a, a better player or not. I, I do know that, you know, the I had won some non-labor tout expert leagues before. You know, to, to use this expression, it did take the monkey off my back. And I think it was in 2015 when I, I won both labor mixed and, and tout wars and all in the same year. It's just a different feeling. Like it's it's a feeling where you're like, okay, I, I don't think, you know, and you know this from the AL, like I don't think people look down on you, Patrick, and think he doesn't know what he's doing. But there is something to be said, like when you've won, there's that relief of like, okay, well, I'll always have this. And, you know, I could finish like in ninth or tenth place for the next three or four years. 
and I won't feel nearly as bad about it. Now that being said, you know, does it help me a little bit? I, I don't know. I, I think that my process is kind of become refined over the years and and pretty well honed where I don't make too many changes based on you know whether I won or didn't win so that that's a little bit tougher to answer like I I know in you know labor for example I think the last three years it's been like fourth second fourth and as you know you know that's that's pretty good that's, that's real nothing good, to yeah that's nothing to really be upset about or beat yourself you know, up over. And I think that's the difference. I think in the past, you know, I know this ties back to the previous question. Had I never won a league, I probably would look at it like, oh my gosh, like I really want to win. Like I really want to get into the winner's circle. I, I know that, you know, Eric Carabell of ESPN, you know, I'm actually friends with him. He lives pretty, you know, close to me. We, but pre COVID, we'd, we'd get together sometimes. You know, he's finished second in labor NL. I don't know how many times. I think it's like seven or eight times. And that's really impressive. But, you know, I know from talking to him that, you know, nobody would look down on Eric. He's one of the better players I know, but he, he wants to win. Like it definitely changes, you know, things a little bit, I think, as far as that goes. And before we leave the podcast with Ellen Adair, uh, you guys were talking about baseball movies. The, the She's an actress, of course. I guess it's a natural place to explore. And you asked her about her favorite movies and what she likes about movies. And then you mentioned the worst movie. I was driving my car. And as soon as you said the worst movie, the worst baseball movie ever, before she could even answer, I said, The Babe. I used to be a, a film reviewer for a newspaper, and I, I recall with horror having seen John Goldman playing Babe Ruth in a terrible movie. And then she said The Babe, and then you laughed and said that would have been your choice too. Uh, let's not talk about bad baseball movies. There's enough of them. But what's your favorite baseball movie? Um, it's probably, in, you know, this answer changes over the years, but it, it's probably a league of their own. Um, I, I offer this with a caveat and, and Ellen and I talked about this on the podcast that I haven't seen Sugar and I apparently should. Uh, if you're not familiar with Sugar, you know that that's a movie about a player coming from the Dominican Republic and the struggles that he faces in the United States. I think it's in Iowa, you know, in the low minors where you know all of a sudden like he doesn't have anybody, you know, he's alone, he doesn't speak the language. Um, I'm not going to recap that movie because I haven't seen it, but a league of their own just is really a pure baseball movie in terms of both the love of the game. Like the baseball action seems really authentic. Uh, the characters are interesting, but it's also a really inclusive movie. My, my daughters aren't into sports, but um, you know, my wife obviously enjoys it and she's into sports either. It's just a great movie for us as a family to kind of enjoy and, and all get into. And, you know, really it, it has an appreciation and love for the game that I think even for some you know, more serious or more high-end baseball movies you don't quite see. Um, so yeah, that, that's probably my choice. You know, it's interesting. I mentioned that I, I was the film reviewer at a newspaper in Western Canada. And when that movie came out, I mentioned to my, uh, my boss, who was a former sports editor, that I was going to go and review it. And he said, you know, and he gave me the names of these two or three women. He said, you should get a hold of them. They live here in town and they played in the league. They were actually recruited by the uh, All-American Girls Baseball League. Is that what it was called? And because they were fast-pitch softball players and, and the talent scouts had come through Western Canada because fast-pitch softball is huge there or was at the time. And so I phoned a, two or three of these women and I took them to the movie. And after we went we went back to a restaurant and uh, had a couple of drinks and, and something to eat. And I said, what would you think? And they really liked it. They said it really captured what it was like. And the only thing that one of them objected to, she said, remember the scene where Gina Davis has been asked to style up her game a bit to try to excite the fans. And she catches a pop foul by doing the splits and sliding and grabbing the ball. And the, the woman that I was with who was a catcher said, 
that would literally never possibly have happened. It's insulting. She was really mad. She said, we were professional baseball players. Nobody would ever do something like that. But other than that, they really loved the movie. Yeah, I've heard that about that scene too with the with the split um from others. But yeah, I mean that that's a really great story. I never heard that from you before. And yeah, that that's that's what's really interesting about that time period and I, you hit the nail on the head. Like those those women were athletes. Like they they weren't fooling around. And they played in shorts. Remember when the White Sox did it that one year and they all hated it cuz you, you slide and you get a a raspberry the size of a, of a watermelon on your thumb. Yeah. Really tough. Yeah, they sh- yeah, they showed that in the movie, like, the, you know, I know it was makeup, but like, it was a woman with, like, this giant raspberry, like, in her upper leg, and it looked very painful. I would have put a league of their own as kind of one of my top three. I've never been able to decide, and it changes around. Usually the last one I watched on Netflix, or or I've got them all on DVD, and every so often I'll pull them out. I, I think my first place one is probably um, um, Bull Durham, and, uh, and right behind that would be uh, Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams is a little corny, but uh, I think Bull Durham really got the baseball part of it right as well. Yeah, Bull Durham will be up there for me too. I, I, I that's a really good movie, and you know some of the stuff in that movie, you know, like Nuke Lelouch getting promoted immediately, and a couple of other things are really Hollywood. But in terms of how it captured minor league life, and particularly back then, you know, you you're, you and I are both old enough to remember like the the miners had a resurgence in the '90s, and suddenly there was money put into it, and it had attention, you know, shown on it. Uh, in the eighties, it wasn't like that. And, you know, when that movie came out, the, the minor leagues was really viewed as like bottom of the barrel. And, and that movie captured that very well. It did. It, it captured the whole experience really well. And I thought it did a really good job of capturing the experience of what it's like to be just not quite good enough and how disappointing that is. Yeah. I, I th- there's something to that. And, you know, it's that idea of, you know, Crash Davis who, and this is something about fantasy and, you know, your question before about appreciation, one way I've grown to appreciate the game, I think as a fan, I used to be like, oh, that player's a bum. You know, he's he's only got a 240 average or whatever. Now you look at, you know, baseball, you're like, yeah, I mean, the, the guy, if you want to go by war, a guy who puts up a 20 career war and hangs around that long is pretty good. I mean, he's one of the best people in the world at what he does. And, you know, with the minors, it's like that too. You know, the, the guys who just miss, they're, they're still really good at what they do. It's just baseball's an extremely tough game. I remember once I was watching a game with my wife and one of my guys, one of my fantasy guys struck out in a bases loaded type situation. And I was kind of venting my uh, anger in his general direction. And my wife says, you know, he's still way better at his job than you are at yours. <laughs> that's that's really apt. I mean, the, mo- most of them are better at what, you know, many of us do, you know, unless you're a high-end surgeon or, you know, an astronaut or, or something like that. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, one of your regular features at Prospectus is the call-up, where you look at some recent uh, minor league call-ups who could be impact players. Uh, you had a column recently about Ian Anderson. Uh, I think that was the name of the flute player from Jethro Tull. But we're talking about a young Atlanta starting pitching prospect. I don't know if he actually got his start because they may have had a cancellation against the Yankees, but you and uh, your co-author, Chris Willis, looked at Ian Anderson. What would you think? Well, so, you know, it's funny. When we put those pieces together, it's before the game starts, so there's always some risk. And by by the way, Anderson did pitch, and he pitched extremely well. I think he he gave up a home run, but otherwise was, was stellar. Um, so, you know, my conclusion about Anderson was, you know, great stuff, um, you know, high strikeout potential. 
the the scouting concern on him has always been, you know, high pitch counts. Even though he's got the good stuff, he tends to nibble instead of, you know, attacking hitters. Uh, that did not look to be a problem against the Yankees. It looked like he was attacking hitters and attacking the zone, and they had a really hard time against them. I think, and I'm struggling to pull up the box score, I think it was Luke Voigt who has been hitting home runs against everybody who hit the home run. Uh, and otherwise, Anderson was was almost untouchable. So, yeah, I, I really like Anderson, and you know, as often happens, I, I think I like him even more than I did in, in the piece when – you know, I, I think I said he's a good matchup play, but uh, patient major league lineups could be a challenge. Uh, the more I look at him, the more I think that he probably should be in play everywhere except in like a really shallow mixed league. And you kind of roll the dice on him. And that's part of the short season, too, and see what you get for like four or five starts. The other piece, too. Um, Atlanta really has a need right now. You know, it's not like they have the luxury. You know, I know Cleveland with Tristan McKenzie, you know, if McKenzie struggles or if they're even like, hey, you know what? We don't want to, you know, push McKenzie too hard. They could just push him back. I, I think Atlanta needs Ian Anderson. So he's he's going to pitch. Another call-up you covered, and this was a week or so ago with uh, co-author Jeffrey Paternosto is Baltimore first base prospect Ryan Mountcastle. I had this guy in tout a, a year or so ago, and, and uh, it was because I thought, how long can they stick with Chris Davis? And it turned out longer than I thought. But this was last week, as I mentioned. He's going to be gone in most American League onlys, I'm pretty sure. But is he worth grabbing if he's available in mixed formats? He's probably worth it in a deep mix. Um, you know, in in a standard or shallow mix, he's he's kind of iffy just because there's there's so many. I, I know corners thinner than it used to be, but there, there's just so many corners with with power. Um, I, I like Mountcastle better as as a pure hitter as as opposed to an over the fence power hitter. That doesn't mean he's not going to hit home runs. He he'll hit some home runs. Um, but I, I see him more as, as a deep mix player. You know, one thing I pointed out about Mountcastle in the piece, though, you know, so Tout's an OBP league where he might actually hurt you a little bit. Um, but Mountcastle, it's, it's weird. He's actually been walking, you know, in, in admittedly a really small sample size was as he's been up. And I'm kind of intrigued to watch that because, you know, if he does continue to walk and, you know, isn't, you know, swinging as freely as much as he was. I mean, I know it's five games. It's a really weird line, like no homers, um, you know, two runs an RBI, uh, but a 375 average and a 20% walk rate. Again, it's a tiny sample, but it's something just to, to watch. Pretty useful in an on base league if he keeps it up. Uh, did you get him in tow? Uh, no, I did not get him in tout. Um, I, I think, uh, I don't remember the reserve order, but I think by the time that he, he came back to me, he was, he was gone. Oh, he went in the reserve rounds. I'm pretty sure he did. I'd, I'd have to go back and, and look, yeah. but I'm pretty sure he was taken in the reserve round just cause I mean, I, I took Andrew Vaughn who was further away on the, on the white Sox, And so it makes me think Mountcastle was, was taken. Mike, you also write a column uh, called Fantasy Freestyle at Baseball Prospectus, and uh, I think it was last week uh, on Friday you had an article called Five Easy Trading Pieces. And for listeners who might not get the reference, more movies, uh, Five Easy Pieces was a really terrific Bob Rafelson film from the early 70s with Jack Nicholson. Well, what was the theme of the article? I was just basically looking at the the five worst teams, um, and I went by at the time um, their Pakoda odds of, of making the playoffs, and you know seeing what what pieces they potentially had to to trade to contenders. And of course, you know since the pieces come out, you know some of the players I've mentioned have moved. Um, Tywin Walker has been traded uh, to the Blue Jays. Uh, Jared Dyson, you know, hot off the presses, was traded this morning to to the White Sox. And of course, the big one so far, uh, Brandon Workman was was traded to the Phillies. 
Most fantasy owners now play in mixed formats, as we know, so there's no league-crossing excitement. But there could be value adjustments for a lot of the players you mentioned should their team circumstances change. Who are some of the players you found you think could really benefit a fantasy owner from a change of scenery? Um, there, you know, there were a few. I, I think Workman was was kind of one of the obvious ones if he closed, which now it looks like he will. You know, he's on a, a somewhat better team. You know, Boston was was awful. Um, you know, Kato Kale, I wrote about this before he got hurt again. You know, I thought he could be a potential beneficiary, but now I, I don't, it's kind of hard to see. And then the long shot player to be traded just because of his contract, who I, I think could benefit just from being on a better lineup for, for more RBI and run opportunities was Kyle Seeger. Um, the thing about Seeger though, keep in mind is he has a, a club option for 2022 and uh, a trade kicks that in and makes it a player option. Uh, which would make him a pretty expensive. I mean, it's not my money. I don't care. But from a team perspective, it would make him a pretty expensive player for 2021 and 2022 if he does get moved. Did you spot any players you thought would lose value as a result of being traded, going from a closer to a setup role, as you mentioned, or a full-time hitting role to platooning or, or even pinch hitting? Um not really, just just because that wasn't the the focus of the article. I think Dy- Dyson would have fit that category, and that that's kind of how that worked out for him. Like I think he's going to be a defensive replacement, you know, fourth outfielder mostly for the White Sox. Now in AL only, he might be interesting just because of those steals. Um, but otherwise, he you know any value he limited value had in deep mixed, I, I'd say he's kind of gone. And then the other guy who who kind of jumped out as a drop in value was Jackie Bradley Jr. Um, he's a free agent at the end of the year. If he gets traded. Um, he really doesn't hit against lefties. I, I kind of see him sitting more and being more of a defensive piece and maybe depending on if he moves, you know, being a fourth outfielder. So those are the kind of players that would lose value. You know, the, the, the fun pie in the sky players I identified in the article, like Xander Bogarts and JD Martinez, if they somehow get moved, and I don't think Bogarts especially is getting moved, but if the two of them somehow get moved, they'll value wherever they go. Exactly right. Yeah, lots of 2021 free agents in San Francisco, but you identified only one name as, uh, and I'm quoting, particularly interesting. Which giant is particularly interesting and why? This is like a quiz where I have to go back and, yeah. and read the article that I, I wrote. I guess it right, though. It's, it's Kevin Gaussman. So, um, you know, a lot of the names here aren't interesting because they're already like borderline and like deep mixed and, you know, Trevor Cahill, yeah, he could get traded and, and wind up somewhere. And, you know, yeah, Tony Watson could be a good middle relief piece, but th- these aren't fantasy or very fantasy relevant names. You know, Gaussman's interesting just because his, his stuff has looked better this year. We, we've seen Gaussman, he, he's a streaky pitcher and truthfully, I, I think he's over the years, not so much this year has been a little bit overrated, um, but he's striking batters out. Um, he's got a pretty good, you know, pretty good pitch mix going for him. And I, I don't like him moving out of that park in, in San Francisco, but he, he could be the kind of pitcher who has a run and we've seen him do it before where he has five or six really good starts for contender, gets some wins, you know, and keeps those strikeouts high enough where he could have some pretty decent value. Mike Gianella is a fantasy writer and podcaster at Baseball Prospectus. He'll be back again a little later in the show. Coming up, though, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Ray Murphy is on the way next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Joseph Pitleski looks at the rosters of all five teams in the National League West, including Chris Paddock's forgettable August in San Diego, Daniel Murphy's forgettable season in Colorado, forgettable starting pitching in Los Angeles, and more. 
In Rotisserie Gaming, Steve Gardner discusses the effects of time compression as we transition from the start of the season right into the stretch. And in Facts and Flukes, analyst Brian Rudd validates performances by five National Leaguers, including disappointing seasons from Anthony Rizzo and Eugenio Suarez. And one of them is a Mike Gianella Boone, so stay tuned for that. Those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in those facts and flukes columns, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. A fantasy market analysis comes up in the market pulse, injury analysis in Matthew Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, and of course, groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues, and it's all why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Harold Nichols is dealing with some after effects from the Hurricanes. And once again, Ray Murphy will be doing double duty. He'll have his American League report a little later on. But leading off, it's our National League report and pinch hitting for Nick, Baseball HQ's Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be here, PD. And thank you for pinch hitting for Nick. Uh, remember, we made fun of him a couple of weeks ago when he had uh, some kind of massive power outage, and we were joking about, you know, plague of frogs and plague of locusts. But he did get uh, some family impacts from the hurricanes down in the U.S. southeast. Some family members that he they need to track down their elderly people, and so uh, Nick's taking a, a, another week to go and find some uh, some of those people. So we do appreciate that you're willing to step in, and we're going to start in Los Angeles. The Dodgers have placed right-handed starter Walker Bueller on the DL. He has a blister on his pitching hand. And Ray, we think of this as a minor issue, Band-Aid, some pickle juice, where you go. But in fact, blisters can be problematic for some pitchers. Uh, so with the Dodgers likely to need starting pitching, especially with double headers coming up, I think Bueller was supposed to start on Thursday before he was put on the IL. What are they going to do? Yeah, they're going to First, first and foremost, I think they're going to be pretty cautious with Bueller here. They obviously, you know, it's sitting at you know twenty-two and nine or whatever they are. They're, you know, they're already basically in getting ready for October mode, so they can afford to make sure that this is fully healed for Bueller and not rush him back or you know throw him into a pennant race or anything like that in the next couple of weeks. That's not to say he's going to be out for all of September, but they're going to wait until they're good and confident that this thing is healed, I would imagine. So what are they going to do in the meantime? I, I saw that they called up Mitch White, who is uh, probably going to – I'm not even sure he'll make a start. He might just be bullpen depth until Bueller's turn comes around again. Uh, he's a uh, 7C prospect on our prospect scale. So, you know, a uh, low-ceiling, solid, regular kind of guy. Uh, last year in Oklahoma City, he had an ERA in the sixes, so that's uh, that's not super encouraging. But he was the number ten prospect on the Dodgers depth chart, so he's a little more than just a guy, but not uh, someone I'd be rushing out to open the Fab Wallet for. Yeah, and uh, I remember Rich Hill of the Dodgers had a lot of bluster problem. Not that I'm suggesting that the Dodgers are in any way uh, sort of responsible for causing blisters or the climate there or whatever the case might be. But uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a tough injury for some guys. Uh, what about uh, Tony Gonsolin? 
Yeah, Tony Gonsolin, both and Alex Wood probably are, you know, if White's the staff filler until Bueller's spot comes up, Gonsolin and Wood are probably the guys who we would look to actually take starts uh, in Bueller's turn. Gonsolin was pitching pretty well uh, for a few starts and then got sent out uh, to the alternate camp, but presumably he could be called back to step into the rotation. Uh, Wood has been on the DL with shoulder inflammation. It's not totally clear that he would be ready to come back soon, but you know, September is coming soon and he was uh, scheduled. He, he was supposed to be on track to return in early September. So might be another turn or, turn or two away, but I would think one of those two guys will pick up whatever starts Bueller misses. And while wow, he's dipping that finger in pickle juice, as you say, there's also a guy, uh, I did some research, uh, an accustomed amount of research for a Baseball HQ Radio podcast, and uh, Caleb Ferguson, who's a bullpen loogie type of guy in the Dodgers uh, staff this year, also had a couple of starts last year, but I suspect those were kind of opener type things rather than actual starts. Yeah, loogie's a good description for him, and just, just scanning his game log, he hasn't thrown more than let's see, 19 pitches is his longest outing of the year. So he could certainly be employed as an opener or something along those lines. And really, you know, as I said, if the Dodgers are getting ready for uh, a playoff run, you know, it's not impossible that they're, they're going to want to get some reps for openers or starters coming in in the second inning in some cases because that might be a strategy that in certain playoff situations they need to deploy. So it might be that they decide to get some reps around that uh, in the course of September from time to time. Well, Ray, as bad as the news about Walker Bueller was for the Dodgers, the news about Steven Strasburg, even worse for the Washington Nationals. He's going to miss the rest of the season. He has a hand injury. Uh, what is Washington going to do to fill what is clearly a gaping hole in their rotation? Yeah, they don't have another Steven Strasburg to plug into that situation. Just a uh, just a crushing injury for them. And you know, the worst part isn't just that he's lost for the season here as he goes for surgery for carpal tunnel syndrome uh, in his pitching hand. Uh, they're saying the goal is to be re- re- to have Strasburg ready for opening day 2021, which is, you know, something a little less than the full-throated, oh, he'll be back good as new, that you'd like to hear. So obviously storm crowd clouds, not just in the short term, but the medium and long term for Strasburg. And as you say, the Nationals have to figure out something to do with the rotation in the meantime. Meanwhile, somebody's got to take uh, Steven Strasburg's roster spot, Ray. Yeah, and the options here are not exciting. Uh, even at the back end of the rotation and, and for fill-in starts for Strasburg to date, Eric Fetty and Austin Voth have been taking those turns and getting knocked around with some regularity. Uh, so maybe the guy to look at is going to end up being Will Crow, who uh, has taken Strasburg's roster spot and may slide into the rotation just because Voth and Fetty have done nothing to uh, really acquit themselves well. Um, Crow got uh, knocked around a little bit in his first uh, first outing, uh, a three-and-a-third inning, four-and-run performance against the Marlins the other day. But given that uh, we've seen even more of Fetty and Voth and are unexcited by them, and might be that Crow gets another couple of starts to see if he can uh, separate himself from this inauspicious pack. Crow's Washington's uh, number four prospect coming into this year, according to Baseball HQ, a second round pick in 2017. So, any fantasy value there? Yeah, potentially. Like you say, um, you know, he rates a 7B on our prospect scale, which is, you know, average regular, but a. Uh, 
you know, pretty good chance to reach that level. That's of course the rub there is that doesn't mean he's going to re- meet, going to meet it right away. Uh, but he's a big guy, you know, six two, two hundred and thirty pounds, twenty five years old. So he's you know he's he's been around the minors a couple of times. You know, his fastball sits around ninety three and. Uh, Matt St. Germain in his call up report for us noted that that 93 is a, a pretty straight uh, offering, but um, he has also been working in a singer and a changeup. And some of those, you know, his offerings, his secondary offerings are still a work in progress. But as he, you know, mixes between the sinker, the slider, the changeup, et cetera, if he settles on a couple of offerings and repeats them, then there's a possibility he could take a step forward here. In Chicago, Ray, the Cubs put third baseman Chris Bryant on the 10-day injured list. He's got a sprained finger, a lot of finger-and-hand injuries uh, on this Baseball HQ report, and uh, a left wrist injury to boot. Uh, Tom Kephart covers this for Baseball HQ playing time today. This is a blow to Bryant's owners, although he, they've been suffering with Bryant all year. Who gets his playing time? Yeah, it looks like the short-term winner here is David Bodie, and it may be more than short-term because it sounds like the Bryant injury might be um, you know, more than the 10 day variety. So Bodie's been filling in at third base already and, you know, he'll continue to be the everyday guy there. He's been, uh, uninspiring this year. He's hitting 214 with four home runs. Uh, last year was a little better he, in about a half a season's work. He hit 257 with 11 homers, a 785 OPS. He, he draw, he's fairly patient at the plate, draws walks at a, you know, nine, 10, 11% rate, which is pretty decent, but you know, there's, um, there are also contact problems, which are you know obviously so pervasive in this game. But there's a sub sub seventy percent contact rate here, which uh, certainly caps the upside specifically in the batting average and and really overall. So additionally, he tends to pound the ball into the ground, which further caps the power upside. So the playing time and accounting stats here are uh, not to be totally dismissed, but not a great place to go fishing for a breakout either. Meanwhile, Ray, should we be starting to think of uh, Chris Bryant as not quite the fantasy asset we were once uh, ready to think of him as? Yeah, you know, it's funny. This kind of dawned on me earlier this week, even before we, even before Bryant actually hit the DL. There was a there was an interesting discussion in our forums where somebody was talking about uh, it was a mixed week thing, but somebody was talking about David Fletcher and how they were outproducing Bryant and teammate Javier Baez. And Tom he- Tom Kephart came on and took our from our staff and took the bold position that he would rather have Fletcher than Baez or um or Bryant right now for the rest of the season. And I kind of jumped in and said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's insane. <laughs> and then like an hour later I was like, oh look, Bryant really has been bad. Yeah, that's and, and you know not just bad for a month here, but you know, before the injury, but to your, he's you know for multiple years now he's been not living up to the promise of that 2016 2017 uh, you know early peak of his career and you know maybe we do have to start asking some questions here. Well, you mentioned that uh, thirty dollars he was at in 2016, and of course that gets everybody excited. But boy, his power just seems to have been in free fall ever since, and I believe he was hitting under 180 when he went on the IL. He only had a 23% hit rate, Ray, and that's something we usually look at. But even if you normalize it to uh, a full 30% hit rate, he's still only about 193, 195, something like that. So uh, it's pretty close to what is a paltry 211 expected batting average. And then he's had all these injuries as well. I don't know if if Chris Bryant's going to be like uh, any kind of guy in next year's drafts. 
maybe even to the point where he's a speculative bargain. Yeah, well, if you fast forward to next spring, it's really going to be a health question because, I mean, let's be fair, his 2019 was pretty decent. He had, uh, you know, 280 with 30 home runs. Uh, you know, the RBIs were a little down because he spent so much time in a leadoff spot. But you're going to get to the point where, you know, in March of 2021, you're looking back at his track record in 2018, 2019, 2020, and only one of those three seasons is, you know, even is really even respectable. So, yeah, how do you, and sure, there are health issues related to that. 2018, it was a shoulder problem that cost him a chunk of the season, and obviously it's the finger in the wrist this year. But as he approaches age 30, you know, chronically injured players don't suddenly get healthy, right? Ask Giancarlo Stanton for sure. Uh, uh, staying in Chicago, the Cubs are forming up a pretty uh, interesting-looking traffic jam in their rotation. They've got Tyler Chatwood coming back. Uh, Jose Quintana is ready to come back from the injured list. Ray, let's start with uh, Jose Quintana. He had a thumb problem. He should be back shortly. Uh, what do you think his role is going to be in the uh, Chicago Cubs pitching staff? You know, it, it's an interesting example of you know the pressures and the pressures of the short season and how sort of all the rules are out the window. Um, Quintana came back and got three innings of work in the other day, I believe out of the bullpen. Um, and Dave Ross was asked, you know, what his role is going to be if he's you know, going to be inserted back into the rotation. And he equivocated and said it was, you know, uncertain at this point. And normally, uh, you know, pitcher of you know, Quintana's pedigree, he's not an ace or anything, but he's an established major league starter. There would be no question that, he'd go right back into the rotation when he was healthy. But this is a, you know, we're at the point where everyone's in a sprint and everyone's rushing over the next month to try to get in playoff position. And I think what Ross is implicitly saying there is, this is going to be a meritocracy. We're going to go start to start, turn through the rotation, through turning the rotation. And if you're pitching well, you're going to pitch. And if you're not, you're not. Yeah, that sounds like it. Uh, and that was against Detroit, that terrible outing, by the way, which is, uh, yeah. yeah, which makes it kind of even worse. You don't worse. get too many chances to redeem yourself from that. What about Tyler Chatwood? Yeah, Chatwood was, you know, he was on fire to start the year. And yeah, small sample size, but the whole season's a small sample size. I was one of the yahoos who threw a ridiculous amount of fab at him after, uh, you know, two or three starts when he looked like he had magically solved his control problems. And this was not your father's Tyler Chatwood sort of thing. Uh, and then he went on the DL, he got scratched from a couple of starts with back stiffness that eventually went from day to day to a DL, and he missed a couple of weeks. Then he came back again against the Tigers, and he walked five guys in an inning and a third. And what can you say to that other than, oh, right, that's Tyler Chatwood. <laughs> that's right, yeah. I was just thinking Quintana has a terrible outing against Detroit, and then Chatwood, have, if anything, is even, well, not even if anything, he was definitely worse. So how do we play all this, Ray, do you think? Yeah, it's you know some. I take this with grains of salt because one of the things you were you wonder about is we're criticizing both these guys for their first start off the DL, but given the situation in alternate camp and there's no minor leagues, there was no opportunity for these guys to go on quote unquote proper rehab assignments. So I can't rule out the idea that even though they got smacked around by the Tigers and in Chatwood's case couldn't find home plate at all, that there was rust and mechanical issues there and if Ross is patient enough to give them another start or two, that they'll snap back to form. Uh, you know, I would certainly sit them until I see something from them, but that might happen fairly quickly. We should say uh, that uh, Tom Kephart pointed out that Quintana's underlying indicators, first pitch strike, swinging strike rates, his fastball velocity, have all been slipping in recent seasons. So at best, he's a risky kind of speculation, is he not? 
Yeah, in terms of upside, I, you know, there's a possibility that Chatwood's beginning of this season was in fact reflective of something, and he recaptures that. But Quintana's trajectory has been a slow decline pretty much ever since he went from the White Sox to the Cubs a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, he, looking at his history now, he had five straight seasons of sub four ERAs from 2012 through 2016. And since then, it's been 415, 403, 468 last year in 2019. So that trend line is going in the wrong direction. And sure, he's not as bad as he looked in that outing against the uh, Tigers earlier in the week. But uh, he's not about to snap back to the vintage 2015 edition of Toza Quintana either. Some more bad news in Atlanta. Second baseman Ozzie Albies was shut down for several days after he experienced some hand pain swinging a bat from the right side of the plate. Uh, Phil Hertz was on this story. What's the news with Ozzie Albies? Yeah, the the wrist seems like it continues to be a problem. Um, I, I didn't think, as an Albies owner in a couple of leagues, I didn't have this sense of how serious this was when he went on the DL. I thought it was a nagging thing that they were just going to take the opportunity to shut him down for the 10 days and hopefully flush it out altogether, but we're, we're past the 10 days now. And, you know, it sounds like it's not getting any better, which is certainly discouraging. Uh, we've cut his playing time now by 20% uh, and continue to project that uh, guys we've talked about before, uh, Johan Carmargo, Charlie Culberson, and Danny Hechevaria are going to uh, sort of tag team second and in some cases third base here. So, um, you know, hoping for good news for Albies here, but it does not seem like any is on the immediate horizon. The story, when it came out on the wires, Ray, seemed to accentuate that the pain came when Albies was swinging right-handed. They made a point of mentioning that, and he is a switch hitter. So might the problem be alleviated either by platooning him or just having him play full-time but swing only from the left side? I've seen some chatter about this. It seems like a great idea to me, and you and I apparently are not the only two people who thought of it. Uh, but Brian Snicker has, in fact, been asked and has said that they're not considering that yet. But again, in a, in a sprint season, especially since his playable side seems to be the left side, which is the good side of the platoons, that rather than playing Culberson, Hetcheverria, and Camargo every day, you would think having Albies out there 70% of the time and using one of those guys the other 30% would be an upgrade. So I don't know if they're, they're still hoping that another week is all it takes and maybe if they finally give up and decide that this is this is not going away in this season and what's the best mitigation they can do. Maybe they're just not ready to cross that bridge yet, but I would imagine the question is going to keep getting asked of Snicker until the answer changes. Especially if Albies continues to have trouble getting on the field because of the pain from the uh, swinging from the right side, as we said. Uh, in St. Louis, the Cardinals finally activated shortstop Paul DeYoung. I have him on a couple of rosters. I've been waiting for this for a while. Uh, he had COVID, uh, as a matter of fact, and he's finally back and uh, on the field. Uh, I assume he slots right back into the lineup. Yeah, that's what our uh, that's what Phil Hertz, who handles our Cardinals playing time, expects. Although, uh, again, sprint season pressures, you have to be a little concerned about what happens if he does not hit the ground running. Uh, Tommy Edmond was filling in at shortstop, and he goes back to you to the utility role now, probably stealing at bats from the likes of Max Schrock and Brad Miller. Uh, but you know, it, Miller in particular seemed to. Uh, I saw a couple of days where he was. Uh, hitting the ball. He's hit 333 with a couple of home runs in 39 at-bats. So if they decide that DeYoung needs a little more time or continues to struggle with the bat, then uh, you know he might get pressed by some of these guys. 
Yeah, that's what I thought as well. Uh, I think that the Cardinals think their best lineup is DeYoung and Edmond and uh, getting some of these other guys off the field. Brad Miller has made a case for himself, but in the full analysis of his career, you have to kind of wonder if that's uh, something that's just a f- kind of a flash in the pan this year. Uh, in Arizona, the Diamondbacks put right-hander Merrill Kelly on the 10-day injured list. Nerve impingement in its right shoulder, they say. Uh, and the D-backs also recalled a right-hander Riley Smith uh, Phil Hurts covering this for playing time today as well. You know, Merrill Kelly was having a really good year. Uh, who's going to get those innings? Yeah, this was just a gut punch for me. I own a ton of Merrill Kelly. I was picking him up in drafts all through the spring and then through the uh, July draft period. And as you say, he was pitching well. I was really enjoying it. Uh, he had a 259 ERA, a sub one whip. Uh, he was only striking out eight and a half per nine, but he wasn't walking anybody uh, you know, under, under one and a half. So his command was up, you know, pushing six strikeouts per walks, which is certainly elite. Uh, I would have very much have enjoyed another month of that kind of production. Uh, I'm sure the Diamondbacks would have too. I gathered that it, the uh, the shoulder has been sore for some time, and uh, they've decided to just shut him down and again hope that they've got they can get him ready for 2021. But that's a uh, that's a blow to, to the Diamondbacks, and more importantly to me personally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the uh, Diamondbacks did not say he's going to be uh, completely finished. They're sending him to the doctor to determine the seriousness of this. But you have to believe that uh, they're not going to, given their position in in uh, pl- playoff race and so forth this year, that they're going to risk a guy with Merrill Kelly's potential to win a couple of extra games in a relatively meaningless situation. Meanwhile, what about this call-up, Riley Smith? Yeah, so he's been a, exclusively a starter in the minors, but it's not 100% clear whether he will get to start for the Diamondbacks. It's not that he doesn't have a pedigree. He was very good in A last year, uh, 62 strikeouts versus only 16 walks in 70-something innings. Uh, but then he got tagged in AAA. Uh, admittedly, that was Reno. Everyone gets tagged in Reno. But uh, it remains to be seen how he, he would transition to the majors. They've been using Alex Young in the rotation. At the time, that was a fill-in for the injured Madison Bumgarner. But Bumgarner is supposed to be back pretty imminently. So there may not be a opening for Smith to start until another domino falls here. He may have to work in the bullpen for a little while. It kind of remains to be seen. And Alex Young may just be the domino and fall himself. Uh, 473 RA in his start so far. He's only got through the fifth inning on one start. And he has a 120 whip, and that's with a 26% hit rate, which is pretty low. Uh, Ray, thanks again for helping out uh, by filling in for Harold Nichols. Uh, Let's move on now to your regular beat in the American League, uh, starting in Texas. The Rangers made some moves. The most significant, I think, from a fantasy perspective is they recalled the outfielder Leody Tavares from their alternate training site. They sent Rob Refsnyder down. Uh, Tavares' call-up is news. Yeah, this is... uh... A, you know, a couple of weeks after sort of the sort of the flood of prospects we got earlier, uh, after the quote unquote super two deadline passed, we you know, we got Joe Adele and the likes of that. It was a couple of weeks ago. Tavares trailed behind these guys a little bit, but you know, he's a very exciting call up. Uh, maybe one of these more for the fantasy than, than real life uh, angles. But you know, this is a true center fielder, leadoff hitter, prototype sort of profile. He's only twenty one, and to be fair. They do expect some power in his game later. Uh, you know, he's six two. He's not a little, you know, Billy Hamilton like burner. You know, there's, you know, they expected he'll add he'll add some meat to his frame 
to uh, to combine with the good bat speed that he has to yield some power eventually. But for right now, he's up for the combination of his center field defense, his patience at the plate, his line drive stroke, and his speed. Uh, so that's a profile that can you know return some fantasy value right away, even while we're waiting on the power. Uh, we all love stolen bases. He's he draws the walks to get on base to give him more opportunities to run. The defense will keep him in the lineup. There's not really another true center fielder on this roster. So you think as long as he's fielding his position, position they'll leave him there. So a lot of reasons to be optimistic, both for the next month and into, into 2021. And we have been mentioning the call-up reports and the kind of prospect ratings that our Baseball HQ scouts are giving. And Leotis Tavares, uh, a 9D. A 9 is like a perennial all-star type level player. The D indicates maybe the, the not a great chance of him achieving that kind of ceiling. But uh, 9D is an exciting guy. You know, I've seen some video of uh, Leotis Tavares, and it reminded me, uh, the first thing that popped into my head was Eric Davis. Oh, wow. That's a good one. I actually... I have not seen video, and in my head, I sort of pictured the, uh, you know, when he said 6'2", 195, I was sort of picturing the uh, the young Dexter Fowler from the, from back in the Rockies days when he was a burner. But uh, Eric Davis is certainly a more exciting cop. Oh, for sure, yeah. You get Eric <laughs> Davis. What do you have, uh, 80 stolen bases one year, something like that, and a whole patch of home runs as well? Eric Davis was a good fantasy player. Uh, who loses the playing time in Texas, especially in the outfield? Yeah, so it's really a end of an era. There, uh, it looks like the the playing time loser is going to be uh, Shinsu Chu, who's been a fixture in that lineup forever, and probably is going to, assuming Tavares hits, is probably going to le- yield the leadoff spot to him. And in one of those things that make me feel old, that that enormous Shinsu Chu contract is uh, is actually expiring at the end of this season. So, uh, you know, Chu is thirty eight. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets dealt at the trade deadline to be a a bench bat or something for a contender and give him a shot at the playoffs. It seems like the the Chu era is really uh, coming to a close in Texas here. The end of big league Chu, as they used to call him. Uh, Texas also put right-hander Jesse Chavez on the IL. He's got something wrong with his toe. And they recalled right-hander named Kyle Cody, which seems like a great name for a Texas Ranger, Ray, doesn't it? It sounds like a movie cowboy. Yeah, it really does. It's like you know, like Buck, like Buck Rogers, Spaceman, and Kyle Cody, Cowboy. Yeah. You, know, you, you, you know, you're on brand when you name them that. That's good. That's what they need to do. You know, what about uh, Kyle Cody? Yeah, so uh, he, he's been kicking around the minors for a while. He was a sixth round pick in 2016. Missed all of 2018 with Tommy John surgery. Um, but he throws gas. You know, it's a 97 mile an hour fastball here. Throughout his minor league career, he struck out more than a batter in an inning. Uh, he brings a nice slider with it. And you know, the, the third pitch that you need to be an effective starter is a you know, change up that's a little bit uh, hit and miss, not in the you know, swing and miss sense, but in the sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not sense. Uh, so you can certainly imagine that this guy would be profile as a back-end reliever if he focused on just the hard stuff. But given the uh, need for starting pitching in Texas and everywhere else, you would imagine they're going to give him at least a chance to uh, to try to stretch out for the rotation. One other move in Texas, the uh, fax machine was really burning. I don't know if they still use fax machines to get in touch with uh, Baseball HQ headquarters. Uh, maybe they need a paper record. I don't know. I should find out. But they made a move. Uh, the last one we'll talk about here, uh, catcher Robinson Torinos was activated from the IL. Uh, and young backstop Jose Trevino might not be losing playing time. What's going on here? Yeah, Trevino... 
acquitted himself pretty well in the 10 days or so that Chirinos was on the DL and given some of the other holes in the lineup. And I suspect maybe some lingering concern about the ankle that uh, put Chirinos on the DL to begin with, that Trevino is going to keep catching and Chirinos is going to do some DH at first base work. It's not like they were getting a heck of a lot of production uh, from those spots anyway. So Jeff Mathis and Danny Santana are really the playing time losers there. Santana losing playing time both in center field to Tavares and in at first base to Chirinos. And then Mathis, uh, you know, just sliding down the catcher depth chart, essentially. Another Chirinos uh, pitcher, Yanni Chirinos of Tampa, is also in the news. He's out for the year. Uh, Chaz Rowe, Jalen Beeks, uh, closer Nick Anderson also to the IL. And to the extent that uh, Tampa has a closer in any meaningful sense, they don't have one now. Uh, Chris Olson covered the Tampa stories in Playing Time Today and Playing Time Tomorrow, a roster forecasting articles. Uh, give us the update on this crazy bullpen situation in Tampa. I really enjoyed the way Chris summarized this bullpen in the playing time tomorrow piece where he went with the, uh, the Oprah, Oprah Winfrey meme of you get a save and you get a save and you get a save. I, I think what I saw that um, someone else picked one up the other night in that Tampa bullpen, it was John Curtis, I believe, uh, that they're now at nine pitchers who nine different pitchers who have recorded a save this year. And that's just in five weeks. I don't, I think, Ander, I think Anderson had three, which made him the quote unquote closer. But now that he's out, They've still got like five or six guys on the roster, each of whom have one save. And the guy who might be the closer is Diego Castillo, who has zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's a situation. But, you know, for years, Ray, when we talked about this stuff here on Baseball HQ Radio and in our columns at BaseballHQ.com and at First Pitch Arizona at, at Tout, a lot of people who do what we do were always saying, they need to manage their bullpens by matching up, uh, doing proper matchups, picking the guys who are right for the situation rather than the inning, all this kind of stuff. And Tampa is taking us up on that, it seems to me. And, of course, their hand is being forced to a certain extent in this instance. But they were doing this kind of stuff uh, for the last couple of years. And uh, it's kind of bad for fantasy owners because we don't know where the saves are going to go, but it's it seems smart. Yeah, I we we might find it frustrating or mockable even from the fantasy perspective, but there's no question that they're using their resources optimally. And I think we've talked a couple of times before, not only are they playing matchups, but it seems to me looking at the game logs that they ha very much have a preference for using guys based on days of rest and trying to avoid back-to-back -back outings wherever they can and letting guys pitch a full inning every other day. And if it's not a day when you're supposed to pitch, you're not going to pitch unless it's the 14th inning and we're just going to, you know, keep people on, you know, scheduled workloads and, you know, not have to, not have to worry about burning guys out. That's not, that's not working in the sense that as you highlighted at the beginning of this section, it's not keeping people off the DL because they're still suffering plenty of attrition in the bullpen, but it does seem like that there's a, you know, there's a pattern of how they're managing it. And from the fantasy point of view, you know, I can't really convey a shrug emoji on a podcast, but that's kind of the answer here, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really is. And of course, in addition to all the guys we've mentioned, uh, Anderson will be back this year. I'm pretty confident of that. Oliver Drake was already playing catch as of Monday. So we could have a, a situation where nobody in this bullpen finishes with, you know, more than four or five saves and a lot of guys finish with one or two. Yeah, it could absolutely be that way. Talking of teams that are injury riddled in New York, some more injuries in what is becoming a nightmare season for the Yankees. Uh, Chris Olson covering the team in playing time today and the American League East playing time tomorrow. 
Uh, to the list, you can now add DJ LeMahieu and Glaber Torres, and Aaron Judge goes back onto the IL. Uh, what are the Yanks going to do to fill up this playing time, and is there any way fantasy owners can benefit with all these great players leaving the roster? Hey, you know, the Yankees you know, not only have a lot of star power, but over the course of their success and you know, so much of the Brian Cashman era, Cashman's been super successful at you know finding the bargain guys, the next man up, the plug-ins, you know, Gio Urshela, at third base is a great example of that. Uh, he's going to be tested here. Uh, in the doubleheader earlier in the week against the Braves, they started Thyro Estrada and Tyler Wade at second base and shortstop for both games of the doubleheader. And the the depth beyond that is they're down to Jordy Mercer and Matt Duffy, which uh, you know it would strain strain even my credibility and the miracles that Cashman has been able to perform if either one of those guys turn into uh, you know a, a real contributor. Those seem like you know stop gaps of the highest order while they wait for the cavalry to come back here. To me, this raises a question, and I'd like your take on it. Uh, a lot of people believed coming into this short season that uh, the most important thing you could do is gather playing time. You wanted to get plate appearances. But when you're talking about guys like Tyler Wade and some of those other names you mentioned who are clearly not anywhere near premium offensive contributors, is it still the case that you'll take a bunch of plate appearances from a Tyler Wade just because you're getting a bunch of plate appearances from the slot? In an, in an only league, I'm sure Tyler Wade and Tyro Estrada have some value this week. Uh, I think it breaks down. I think it breaks down pretty quickly after that. Though, I guess what it's what surprised me about this sprint season has been the churn on the rosters, the number of injuries, and maybe it's just been you know combination of you know the long way off in the spring combined with the expanded rosters combined with teams not being able to have the flexibility of letting guys work out day to day injuries and shutting them down. It's a week to week proposition to find those that everyday playing time. But uh, you know, I'm going to, if I'm looking for it, I'm probably looking for it at a higher caliber than Wade and Estrada right now. And finally, Ray, before I let you go, I'd like to talk about the batter buyer's guide column uh, that Stephen Nickrand wrote this week, looking at uh, the title, I think, was Very Early StatCast Changes for Hitters. These are guys whose StatCast metrics, barrels and launch angle and uh, exit velocity and so forth have shown some potentially meaningful upticks. And there were a lot of guys on, on Stephen's list. It's a very interesting column. But let's start in Toronto with American League home run leader Teoscar Hernandez. Yeah, this was a very interesting column. We talked last week on the show about Ryan Bloomfield mining for pitch mix changers, and this is, this is almost the hitter equivalent of that. Stephen mining the Statcast data for people who were uh, doing doing things differently, doing them better, and starting with Hernandez. You know, it's no surprise that there has to be something in the metrics to back up the ridiculous start he's been off to. Uh, I think he hit his tenth home run the other night. Um, but his Stephen checked, and sure enough, his exit velocity is up a couple of ticks, and it's gone. Moving from 91.2 miles per hour to 94.8 doesn't sound like a lot, but um, but in the uh, you know within the range of uh, of values that M- that MOP hitters live in, that's actually a move from sort of upper middle of the pack to great. Um, and he's hitting 95 plus mile per hour 60 percent of the time, which is also strong. He's barreling more balls. Basically, the t- the home run the power he's showing is not a fluke, according to. The Statcast metrics. He's not picking up cheapies. 
Yeah, that's that's the key thing, isn't it? When th- that's what these Statcast metrics really do tell us: the guys scoring the ball up and hitting it hard, which is uh, doesn't always generate hits, doesn't even always generate home runs, but it's a really terrific sign that good things are happening here. And in Tampa, where they could use some good news, uh, Manuel Margot also showing some real big improvements in his Statcast metrics. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember I, I think you and I were talking about the trade with the Padres back in the offseason when he got to Tampa and we were sort of scratching our heads trying to figure out what they were going to do with him uh, or why they targeted him. And it might just be that they saw something in his swing or they saw something in his profile that they could see the post-hype abilities there because he's really popping right now. Uh, Not that he's changed his profile as much. He's still the same, um, you know, line drive oriented hitter, but he's hitting more line drives than ever. Um, his exit velocity again, like like Hernandez, is up a couple of miles an hour. That's not yielding the home runs at the same clip because he's got more of a wide drive swing. It doesn't have the launch angle behind it to knock the balls over the fence. But it's worth remembering that he's only 25. He also brings great defense that'll keep him employed, and also takes a walk at a you know better than league average clip. So there's still some post type sleeper potential here, especially if there's if there's another step or if. What he does, what he's done in seventy-five at bats or whatever it is so far, is just the, uh, you know, j- just the beginning of him consolidating these gains here. Now, one of uh, his real useful fantasy skills in San Diego the last three years was stealing bases. He had seventeen, eleven, and twenty, and that if you could get anywhere near that, even prorated in this short season, that'd help. But I don't know that Tampa runs enough for that to be a real, real important consideration where Margot is concerned. Yeah, it's, it does seem like it's been tamped down a little bit there, but maybe not entirely. And perhaps if you're really mining for optimism there, he's got three stolen bases this year, but the best part is he hasn't been caught stealing yet. So if if it's if it's a question of him establishing to his manager and the organization that he knows how to pick his spots or that he's an efficient base stealer and he's not going to blindly run into outs, then maybe a couple more without getting caught would start to uh, change the change the amber light to yellow. It'll be interesting to watch. Uh, uh, Teoscar Hernandez, Manuel Margot, they're probably going to be on rosters, but if your trade deadline's coming up and you can convince somebody in your league that it's smoke and mirrors, maybe this is a chance to take advantage of that. Ray, thanks a million for helping us out, both with the American League and, as I mentioned, with the National League, and we'll talk to you again next week. Always a pleasure, PD. Catch you in a week. Well, I mentioned how the Walker Bueller story broke just as we started talking with Ray. And now another Walker story has broken just after we finished. Seattle has traded starting pitcher Taiwan Walker to Toronto. And Ray emailed me a few quick comments. From the Toronto view, Ray says Walker is a nice get. Yes, he has a four ERA, but 25 strikeouts to just eight walks in his 27 innings this year. That's a 3.1 command ratio. Uh, Buffalo is a negative move, though, from a park factor perspective. From Seattle's point of view, Ray says there could be more starts for Nick Margavicious or Eric Swanson. If you feel like gambling, there you go. Ray Murphy is a Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager, and he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, part two of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella, fantasy writer and podcaster at Baseball Prospectus. Mike Gianella coming back next on Baseball HQ Radio. The 1-1, swing and a drive to deep left field. It's got a chance. Up and going back. It's going to go. Home run, Bartolo Colon. Repeating, home run, Bartolo Colon. Seven-line army in right field might tear this ballpark down. 
Colon carried his bat with him until he was about 10 feet from first base. He's taking the slowest home run trot you've ever seen. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt. And I'm with Mike Gianella, who writes and podcasts for Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, on Tuesday night of last week, um, Lucas Giolito threw a one-walk no-hitter, by the way, on my tout team. And immediately the baseball and fantasy baseball media erupted, arguing whether Giolito is now a bona fide fantasy ace. First, how do you think we should define a bona fide fantasy ace at all? Well, I mean, that, that's one of those like philosophical questions that probably doesn't have a a great answer. <laughs> uh, you know, what, one of the biggest things to me to, to define that is volume and, you know, where it's a little bit tough with Giolito is, you know, coming into this year, he hasn't thrown more than, you know, 176, 177 innings in a single season. Um, I, I'd probably like to see that from him one, once. And we obviously won't see that this year. Um, you know, the other thing that really is important is a high strikeout total in this, this day and age. Like you, you can be like Kyle Hendricks, for example, Kyle Hendricks is a heck of a pitcher. I don't think I would ever look at him as an ace for fantasy just because you need those strikeouts and they're not going to be there for him nearly as much as they would be for, for someone else. I think for Giolito, a lot of that other stuff is there and he's, if he's not an ace, he's certainly on the periphery of it. Like he's, he's got good stuff. He, he looks, you know, really good. It's, it's funny. He's changed from what he was as a prospect with the nationals. He used to throw really hard. He still throws hard. He still hits 93, 94 on average, but it's really his secondaries that he's refined that have made him into, you know, the pitcher that he is now. I did an analysis of him for baseball HQ uh, when he kind of broke out last year. And in my reading up, uh, it seemed like one of the big things he changed was his whole mental outlook. He started dealing with a counselor. Uh, he was having trouble apparently dealing with failure. And in baseball, there's lots of failure, as we both know. And how much stock do you put in something like that where it's not you know, a new grip or it's not that he's changed his mechanics and added a mile an hour to his fastball, but it's just what's between the ears. I think it's really important, but I think it's also hard to say that something like that has happened and that it is impacting. Yeah, it matters. It certainly matters. It's one of those things that's hard to measure though, you know, without really like talking to the player. And, and this is where, you know, not having access, which you know I don't, it makes it difficult to, to speculate on it. Um, I, I'd say for someone like Giolito, who you know was a high-end pick, who had a lot of expectations, who, who did fail, you know, repeatedly. I know reports out of Washington, you know, so I, I saw some retrospective criticisms of the Nationals for trading him, but that really, se- you know, after the no-hitter, but that really seemed like one of those situations where he needed to go somewhere else. Like he, he needed to be moved out of, you know, out of a place where he couldn't do it. So to answer your question, I, I don't know. I, I think there's something to it, but yeah, I, I don't want to, you know, go too far into the weeds and, and guess that. How much weight do you think is appropriate to attach to a single outing like this, especially against the 2020 Pittsburgh Pirates who are kind of the Detroit Tigers of baseball offenses this year? And no hitters and no hitter. There, there's, you know, you, you have to kind of grade a little bit on the curve. Like had he, you know, had he no hit, um, you know, I don't know, the New York Yankees, you, you'd probably be have more of a ooh, ah, but you still got to get it done. And, you know, I don't know how much of the game you saw. I saw the last like three innings. He had his ace stuff. He, he really looked like he would have been difficult for, you know, almost any team to, to kind of take advantage of. You know, one thing I did notice where, you know, which had an impact is, you know, he was throwing some pitches that, 
weren't way out of the zone, but also weren't that close. And, and the Pirates were kind of flailing at them. Now, granted, there was a lot of movement on those pitches. Uh, I, I think that a, a more experienced team or lineup might have been like, yeah, you know what? Like, let, let's see if we can chase him out of the game or, or tire him out further. Um, you know, it, it is a little tough because, you know, coming into that game, he, you know, I know some of it was a really bad first outing. He had a 488 ERA. And, you know, I know ERA isn't everything, but that, that's kind of where the this, this short season makes this tough too. Like he really jumps up, you know, based off an outing against a weak opponent. Um, so yeah, I, I think balancing those two things, a no hitter is great. It certainly matters. He, he looked great, but yeah, you have to discount it from a fantasy perspective, you know, just a little bit. Before the season, Mike, there was a bit of expert disagreement about Shane Bieber, whether he's actually a, a bona fide ace or second tier type guy, or even not at all uh, as good as people think. But he leads all of baseball in strikeouts and strikeouts per nine, uh, in BWAR, second in ERA, third in WHIP. He's doing a, a really well, having a fantastic season. But again, he seems to be reaping the benefits of this unbalanced schedule. He's had starts so far against Pittsburgh. They're 30th in OPS, Cincinnati 23rd, Kansas City 22nd, Detroit 20th, also two against Minnesota, who everybody thinks has a really good offense, but it's actually slightly below league average. The only decent offense he's faced is the White Sox. What do you think of Shane Bieber as an ace pitcher, given the fact that he seems to be uh, you know, battling some borderline clubs? Yeah, I I still believe in him. It's really tough to get too down on Bieber because you know that many strikeouts and seventy five strikeouts in forty six and two thirds inning is is really good no matter who you're facing, and, and the control is, is a big piece with him too, and that's still there. Um, you know that being said, I, this year is tough. Um, before the season started, we we were asked at Baseball Prospectus to make like some wild predictions. And my prediction, I didn't pick Bieber. I, I picked Mike Clevenger. And this, of course, was was pre-COVID and or pre, you know, when he was sent to the alternate site. I predicted Mike Clevenger would break the ERA record for a single season. And you know, now Bieber is the guy who looks like he could do it. But the point I made about Clevenger is a lot of that would be the schedule. Um, the other thing about Bieber, you know, he's got a strand rate of of ninety six percent. I don't think that's going to keep up. And you know, his home run per fly ball rate is is pretty high too. So th- there's some there's some room for regression here. I mean, it's kind of overstating the obvious for a pitcher with a you know, one, three, five ERA. Um, but yeah, I did. The season is what it is. And if he's going to keep facing these, these soft weak lineups, um, you got to kind of take advantage. You know, I know for, for a segment you have toward the end that, that boom bust segment, you know, I, you asked to pick someone in every league and for every role, I, I picked a Cleveland pitcher and I don't want to spoil it for your listeners, you know, just because of the schedule advantage. So you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt, but for this year only, you have to take advantage of it too. Bieber is one of three starters in the top 10 in Major League Baseball in ERA, in WHIP, and in K9. All the WHIP guys are under 1.0. The second pitcher on the list is Trevor Bowers, fourth, second, and second, I think. He he showed us some pretty high-level performance before. Very controversial guy. Has had some bad years, more bad years than good years, actually. Has he, do you think, finally got it figured out and become an ace? I don't know, <laughs> just because, as you said, we've we've seen this before with him. Uh, you know, he certainly had. I, I think it was in, in 2018. You know, he's had a long run of a season where he was an ace, but you know, every other year he he has a, he has a stretch or, or a period where he struggles and he looks completely lost. And you know, even this year in in the games that that he hasn't pitched 
I don't want to say quite as well. He's had a great season. He's had some games where the long ball has has kind of gotten to him a little bit. And his last outing in particular, you know, at the Brewers, that's kind of what happens. So, yeah, he, I don't want to say he's an ace. I, I think he's really close. I'd like to see a full season of it before I, I kind of anoint him that. And something interesting, you know, before we leave, like Bauer and, and Bieber, these teams like facing each other over and over again, as much as the lineups might be weak, I think that'll have some something of an impact for these hitters, you know, and seeing the same pitchers and seeing the same teams on, on repeat. Especially since they often play each other fairly close in time. So you might actually yeah. see the same starting pitcher within, you know, two series back to back. The third guy who's in all three of the categories, ERA whip and strikeouts per nine, a very intriguing young starter, Denelson Lamette of San Diego, seventh, fourth, and eighth. I got to ask, ace in the making, do you think, or flash in the pan? Well, probably something in the middle. Uh, he's he certainly, you know, with the stuff he has, you know, and I remember watching, you know, he's been re- relying even more heavily on the slider than usual. And what he's really been doing, he's, he's just been throwing that slider and, and saying to hitters, hey, if you can hit it, great. You know, if you can't, then I'm just going to keep throwing it. So I, I've always had that knock on pitchers like this. And this is true of his team at Chris Paddock, who's struggling. You know, Lamette's a, a two-pitch pitcher. I, I think it's a really rough road for a starter to be an ace. Like I know a, a couple pitchers have, have done it over the years. So I'm reluctant to put the ace tag on him, but I don't think he's a flash in the pan either, just because that, that slider is such a weapon and you know, he is such a high strikeout guy that he's going to be better than he, what he was, you know, pre 2020, you know, he's, he's not going to be a pitcher with a four ERA and, and high strikeout rates, but where you just scratch your head. I, I think he's something in the middle of that. When you get a guy like this, only with two pitchers, but one of them is really good, is he going to benefit from the movement in baseball to just fewer and fewer innings, fewer and fewer times through the batting order so they don't play the third time through penalty? I mean, if this guy, if they just say, look, you're going to go two times through and that's it, and that gets you through five innings, good. uh, Is he the kind of pitcher that doesn't need a third pitch because baseball's changing enough that, you know, he's just going to pitch shorter outings, maybe more of them, something like that? That probably depends on the the team and the lineup he's facing, and and how much they can work the count and you know get yeah. the pitch count up higher. You know, something I always think about. You know, when you watch like a you know a good leadoff hitter, sometimes a good leadoff hitter will you know foul off a bunch of pitches and you know just maybe weakly ground out, but he gets to see eight or nine pitches, and everybody in the the dugout or you know, the on deck hitter gets to watch you know what the pitcher's doing. So it, it's really dependent on a lot of that. I, I think it helps. I, I do think, you know, when you think about a reliever being a two-pitch pitcher and where that benefits, it's usually because they only face at most like six to eight batters. So even going through the second time through the lineup, it's not as much of a penalty, but there, there's still a bit of a penalty for a pitcher like like Lamette. I'd, I'd like to see a few more outings from him before I, you know, kind of say, yeah, he's he's definitely ace material. In general, if, if let's suppose Lamette finishes strong and has a really sterling record at the end of this uh, abbreviated season, how do you think we ought to respond next season, assuming it's a full season, to the performances that we see in this season, given the shortness of it? Man, that, that, that's a tough question in general, not just about Lamette. And I've been thinking about this with with a lot of players. Um, it's it's difficult because you know you mentioned Bieber before. You know, so Bieber goes out and finishes the one five ERA against some central opponents that are pretty weak. You know, over like you know ten or eleven starts. 
how do we measure that versus the idea that to get value from Bieber next year, he's got to pitch 32 or 33 starts and, you know, put up those kind of numbers before we make him a first round pick or, you know, spend over 30 and nail only. So I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's going to be the challenge that we're all going to have valuing players. And, you know, I, I know even in the simplified, you know, when you're waiting seasons, you know, and you're going backwards and you're using kind of a three, two, one, you know, reverse model to, you know, which is you know simple. And I'm not saying you should do that, but if you're just doing that as a rough back of the napkin thing, you probably need to weigh this season a little bit less because it's, it's already, you know, even if it's because it's just 60 games and it's shorter, it's going to be tough. I think for the pitchers in particular, it's going to be really tough to, to kind of weight that. And then, you know, with the seven, eight double headers, like even, even more so that kind of throws things off where it's like, well, there can be some pitchers going four or five innings where, the, the manager's like, yeah, I can just go to the bullpen earlier. You're not going to have that luxury next year. At least I hope not. You know, I, I've been asking all the guests I have on the podcast who do player projections and player valuations about this very question. How are you going to fit the 2020 short season into the model? And uh, yeah, so far they're not, they're not too sure. I asked Todd Zola and I asked Ariel Cohen, you mentioned, and Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ, that very, that very thing. And they just said, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of. Throw, there's no good. There's no good way. Yeah, there's no good answer. The other starters on the leaderboard in two of the three categories include uh, the resurgent Lance Lynn, the reborn Kenta Maeda in Minnesota, and the re something or other Aaron Nola. Any ace material here? Probably of the three, Nola. Um, I, I really, you know, I really love Nola's stuff. Um, from what I've seen this year, you know, he he's got the curve working again. Um, you know, or working, you know, not only in the zone, but effectively in the zone. And, you know, when Nola is going well, I know his last outing wasn't the greatest, but when Nola is going well, he, he is a, a top shelf pitcher. Um, I like, I like, really like Maeda and Lynn too. And this is where the ACE labels kind of, kind of subjective, you know, both are quality pitchers, both, I believe, and especially Maeda were, were really underdrafted, you know, this spring, you know, it, it's just tough for both of them. You know, Maeda's case, it's, it's the strikeouts aren't quite there for me to, to put him in that ace bucket. And, you know, isn't it weird now that when we talk about a pitcher who has like nine or 10 strikeouts per nine, he's, he's no longer an ace, but I, I think it's true. Like, I think you really need to have a, a really like high end number. Um, Lynn is really close for me. You know what I'd like to see, you know, speaking of short seasons, I, I want to see how that park in Texas plays. It, it looks like a pitcher's park. And, you know, if Lynn stays there and, you know, Lynn is, you know, is a three-year deal, but there's some trade rumors because, you know, he, he's affordable and, you know, teams might be willing to pay more in prospects for that affordability if they, and the fact they can keep him next year. But yeah, I, Lynn is, Lynn's really close for me. I, I think I just want to see a little bit more in that park to kind of, kind of gauge, you know, the one thing about Lynn, we don't go off of BABIP as much as we used to, but, you know, 189 BABIP, uh, you know, we know that's not going to keep up. That's usually not the case. Of course, short sample this year, there's a possibility that it will linger longer than it would have in a in a longer season. Uh, Lynn is another one of those kind of guys, Mike, like Giolito, where there's a narrative outside of the field that makes, uh, makes for intrigue or makes for a certain sense of wonderment. And that is after being very um, dismissive of advanced analytics, Apparently, he really embraced them in the last couple of years and has made some significant adjustments to his approach based on the fact that he's now using these analytic tools that other pitchers have been using for a while. How much stock do you put in a narrative like that where a guy's looking at numbers because God knows we believe in them? I think it's interesting and it matters more and more because, you know, we've seen this year. You mentioned Bauer. Bauer's, you know, actually done that right. too. You know, we, we see that with players where they make an improvement. You know, one thing about that is that 
you do have to be careful because it cuts both ways. And I'm sure you remember a couple of years ago, you know, Yonder Alonso, you know, had a launch angle like discovery and some of us working with the analytics team. And he had a month there where he couldn't stop hitting home runs. And then he kind of went back to being Yonder, Yonder Alonso. So you do have to be kind of careful with it. You don't want to just take one or two starts or a month and go, Ooh, this, this pitcher is better. But in Lynn's case, you know, you're, you're talking about a pitcher now who's been doing this really for, you know, a year and change. So, I I think what Lynn has done is is pretty legit, and you know you can probably point to that you know uh, working with the front office as a positive change. You know, one thing about that too. So I, I know somebody in in the the Phillies front office, and you know she she works in R and D, and where this is tough too. You know, she was talking about a couple of players who, you know, I'm not going to mention their names, and I don't want to give away who she is, but um, you know, she's talking about how some players will will work more ardently with those type of people than others, and. You know, it, it, one player she mentioned, like, was, and this is somebody who wasn't even doing well, like, really wanted to, you know, learn and really wanted to work. And another player was kind of like, oh, you know, this, this isn't really for me, or, you know, I don't really want to try this. So when you hear somebody's working with, with someone in analytics, it doesn't necessarily mean the lessons are, you know, taking hold. Well, I used to teach, so I believe me, I'm, I, I'm going to say, as a teacher, you you probably know, you know, you, there's yeah. only so much you could do with some students. And some students, you're probably like, oh, I wish I could have 20 of, of the student. Yeah, there's usually one uh, one of those and qu- more than one of the other kind, uh, for sure. Yeah. Before we leave this whole idea of aces, uh, we had some starters, first-round starters who, who aren't measuring up this year. That always happens. But Max Scherzer, in particular, has not looked really good this season, uh, notwithstanding even the injuries. He hasn't looked good when he's been on the mound. Uh, has Max Scherzer, do you think, gone over that sort of top of the curve and uh, headed up back to the downhill side? Uh, it's possible. I, you know, so, so for Max Scherzer, what, what's funny is the, the strikeouts are there and I believe, yeah, the velocity is, is still pretty much there. You know, he, he's, the command hasn't been there and the control quite hasn't been what you'd expect. And, you know, he's allowing a few more home runs. I think what's really tough with this, and this is where with all these pitchers, we, we just don't know, you know, Scherzer battled some injuries last year. You know, they, I don't think they were arm related, but I think they were back related. And it's just tough to know what that short ramp up did. You know, we, I think we saw this with Justin Verlander. I, I do wonder if Verlander had had, you know, I know we'd have missed time because he was hurt initially, but if he had had a full spring training, you know, what that, what, would have happened, how that would have taken shape. I think for an older pitcher like like Scherzer, who was coming off of the injury, that's where most of the effect was. You know, the question is, you're right, it's tough. He's he's 36 years old. You know, I don't want to say he's done, but he's reaching that point in the age curve where you know a lot of mileage on his arm, you know, a lot of volume. Um, you know, hard to say if he'll come back. I'd say the velocity and the strikeouts are in, encourage me and make me think he hasn't lost something necessarily. It's more that he's off his game. There are all kinds of other starters we didn't mention, uh, Dylan Bundy, for example, but are there any other fantasy aces you think who are hiding in plain sight? Well, it, it's tough in this day and age because, you know, the hiding in plain sight thing is is sort of, uh, it, <laughs> it's difficult because we all know what, what everybody knows. Um, I, I think the pitcher who who I look at a little bit it, that I, you know, because the strikeout rate, is, rate isn't quite elite is Max Fried. Um, he's done, you know, exceptionally well. Um, I know some of that ERA is a mirage. I don't expect him to put up a one, three, five, but you know, every time I've watched him, he, he just looks like a, a legit pitcher and somebody that, um, you know, I know it's years ago at this point, but the Padres are probably sorry that he, he got away. I imagine. So he hasn't given up a home run yet this year. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's correct. You're right, and then you know Zach Greinke hasn't either. You know, <laughs> Zach Greinke's funny because you know you watch him throw. You know, what is it like a, a 56 mile an hour pitch? As some people call it, Ephus, and the he's Ephus. almost like he's almost toying with you know like the other team. I think you've seen him like pointing the ball at them and then throwing the pitch, and you know the hitter like swings like I don't know what to do with this. But yeah, I don't think Greinke's underrated. I think we all know who he is at this point. You know, he's probably a future Hall of Famer. I would I would think. I think so too, and. Is there any pitcher out there, Mike, that's having a really bad year that you think is so out of character that he might be a a real genuine bargain in drafts next year? Next year, well, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit tough just because you know, again, you're you're sort of talking about the the small sample. If you're talking about an ace, I, I, I think that's kind of hard to say. You know, Garrett, Garrett Cole has has struggled a little bit, but I don't think he's going to be a bargain. You know, we all know who he is. Um, you know, one, one pitcher who might actually slip a little bit, who I, I thought was, these are pitchers I like, pitchers who I thought were a little bit overrated at first, but will wind up being o- underrated, um, is Jose Barrios with, with the Twins. Um, you know, I always thought Brios was someone that people put too much value into, too much stock in. They thought he was going to, you know, get way better. He's having a bit, a bit of a down year so far. But you know, again, the strikeouts are there, the the velocity's there. I, I think the command's a little bit off. But if he gets that command back, I, I think he's a solid. I don't want to say ace, but he's a solid number two in in fantasy and maybe a back end one in AL only. And some people are going to look at this year and discount him. And to me, it looks mostly like small sample stuff. I've had Jose Barrios in a lot of teams over the last few years, and he always seems to be good, not great. You know, and I'm still waiting for that great year. And he might be one of those guys who is good, not great for his whole career, and and that'll have to be fine, just as long as you're not paying great prices for good performance. Well, that's what I think. I think he's a very, I think he's a good to very good pitcher that people have been paying for greatness. There's going to come a point when people stop paying for that greatness, and that's usually when I swoop in. <laughs> And you mentioned you have some shares of Matt Boyd or had some shares of Matt Boyd. Uh, coming into the draft season in March, a lot of people were touting the Matt Boyd as a potential sleeper, a guy you need to get because blah, blah, blah. And he's just been awful, as we all know. Any chance at all for Matt Boyd next year? Well, you know, the funny thing about Matt Boyd is he's another one, and I think even more so than Brios. He, he's not this bad. But I, I always kind of scratch my head at a guy who you know never had an ERA below four three nine. People got excited, understandably, about the strikeout spike last year, but he gives up so many home runs, and you know it, it's just one of those things. Like he he should turn it around from this. Like he, he's not this bad, but I, I just kind of never understood why people were this year were so excited about Matt Boyd and having a breakout. Like we we have a lot of data to look at, and he's a talented pitcher. It just has never really translated all that much to fantasy. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Uh, Mike, it's been an interesting season on the hitting side as well, a mix of old names and new at the top of the leaderboards, uh, starting, of course, with uh, San Diego shortstop Fernando Tatis Jr., top 10 pretty much across the board, batting 300. Obviously a star here, but is the short season, the short sample size going to be enough to vault him way up to the top picks in 2021, Mike Trout and guys like that? Acuna. Yeah, I you know I'm, I'm not one of those people who does like super early rankings, but but I've got to think even conservatively that Tatis has got to be a, a top five player. Um, you know, we now have enough data to know he's going to hit for power. You know, he's not keep this up, but he's going to hit for power. He's going to steal some bases, um, and even the batting average, which which was really the big knock on Tatis, like some some of the prospect guys, um, like Clay Link at, at RotoWire, 
Um, you know, Clay, Clay loved Tatis, but he was like, well, you know, watch the average coming up. That could be a problem. You know, the average wasn't great in the minors and he's going to face major league hitting. You know, Tatis now is a 313 lifetime hitter. Like, even if you think he's only going to like hit 270, 280 next year, for whatever reason you think that, there, there's enough there to that he's pretty much a star. And I, I, I don't really see any reason not to draft him, I'd say somewhere in that top five next year, even to the back end. Few other young hitters finding their way to the tops of the value boards and category leaderboards. Uh, I'd like to get your take on a guy like Kyle Lewis of Seattle, top ten in Baseball HQ dollar value, decent across the board production. How do you like uh, Kyle Lewis? Um, I do like Lewis. Uh, you know, he he's somebody I wonder. You know, this is kind of obvious about the average a little bit. You know, he's hitting three fifty. I, I don't expect that to to keep up. But I got to say, every time I watch Kyle Lewis play, he he's doing something very well on the field. And you know, he's an example of a player who you know was hurt and people kind of wrote off because he was hurt and said, well, you know, it's it's nice he made the comeback in twenty nineteen. I still think he was finding his baseball legs in twenty nineteen in Double A. And he clearly found them this year. So, you know, th there's probably some regression coming, but I think people are going to overstate. Some people are going to overstate that regression, and he might actually be a slight bargain next year for that reason. Not far behind Lewis Toronto outfielder Teoscar Hernandez. I think he's leading the American League in home runs the last time I checked. Uh, batting around 300, which seems really weird for him. Four stolen bases. And uh, if he had a better lineup around him, maybe get some runs and RBIs. Uh, what do you think of Teoscar Hernandez? I, I don't believe in the average, you know, to your point, you know, before this, he had hit 230 and 239 the year before. Uh, otherwise, I, I like a lot of what I see. Like, the, so the strikeouts are always going to be there. It's just the, the way he hits his approach. But uh, the power is certainly legitimate. And, and while I'm a little bit surprised by, by the steals, um, we knew he had speed. Um, yeah, he, he's funny. He's somebody that a, a Pakoda really liked, and I was kind of skeptical about it. But I, I took him on the back end in a couple of leagues because of it. And I, I certainly can't complain about the results. Mike Yastrzemski? Uh, I, I like Yastrzemski. So, you know, Yastrzemski is an, an example of a player. You know, I, I, I think, you know, a lot of people know this. Like his his dad died under, under tragic circumstance when he was young. And, you know, he struggled a, a long time in, in the minor leagues to kind of establish himself. But um, he's one of those rare bl late bloomers I, I kind of believe in. Uh, I don't necessarily ever seeing you know see him as a big time power guy, but he has enough of a you know natural ability and and good swing there, and you know he's even you know last year I think the knock on him was the walk rate in the majors dropped a little bit. The walk rate's back up there, and that that's part of what's what's great about Yaz is his, his approach is terrific, and he'll kind of take what the the pitchers give him. Um, so I, I think he's a real legitimate major league hitter. I don't know, you know, what the shape of that is going to look like. And, and for fantasy, it might not be necessarily, you know, what you want. He might drop to only 270 and not be a big time power hitter. But I think as far as a major league player, he's, he's a legit player. How about Anthony Santander of Baltimore? $30 season so far. Yeah, he's he's been really good, and you know he he's kind of another player. I I know I, I think he was uh correct me wrong. I think he was a, a rule five pick at, at like years back, and you know kind of like flew under the radar, and you know people really didn't think much of him, and then he had some injuries, um, and then last year he had a decent season, but really was mostly for for fantasy and for from a power perspective. So I I think Santander is good. Uh, you know, probably of the, all these players we've mentioned, though, I, I can see him cooling off the most. I, I don't necessarily see this shape of production or level of production, you know, necessarily continuing. I do think the power is for real, though. And you know, even though he, you know he's not going to hit forty or fifty home runs in a full season or or whatever, you know, seeing like twenty five to thirty next year is is a pretty reasonable expectation. 
Uh, you're right, Anthony Santander, a Rule 5 pick from Cleveland by the Baltimore Orioles in 2016. Uh, Kyle Tucker finally got his chance in Houston this year, and he's kind of taken off with it, uh, up around $30 in value as well, across the board production as well, four bags. Uh, 262 BA is nothing to, nothing to write home about, but it's okay in this year's context especially. How about Kyle Tucker as a long-term thing? Yeah, I, I, I like Tucker and you know it's it's interesting too because Tucker's a guy who just he seemed to be completely squeezed out. He didn't have a chance. And it even looked like this year that when you know with Josh Reddick there that they were gonna go with Reddick, but uh, the Jordan Alvarez injury opened up time for Tucker and I think this is what we'll see, and the average might be even a little bit lower. That that's uh, long term. That's kind of was always a knock on Tucker that he's just not going to be like a high average guy, and he might struggle there. But everything else looks good to me, and yeah, this this is kind of what I was expecting, like a, a nice power speed player, where even if it's not big time power, he could be the rare like you know twenty twenty player, which or twenty five twenty, which we don't get to see in this, this era, day and age very often. So yeah, Tucker Tucker's someone. Um, I have him as a farm player in my home league that we didn't like play through this year. He's a big buy for me in, in other leagues next year. And of the three Kyles who are having big years, Kyle Lewis, Kyle Tucker, Kyle Seeger, we didn't even mention, who's having a bit of a renaissance. Who, who do you like? Uh, I think of the three for fantasy, I like Tucker just because of the steals. Um, you know, if you're talking about real baseball, I think I'd, I'd lean a little bit more toward, toward Lewis for, from the pure hit tool. Injury slowed the role of Toronto shortstop Bo Bichette, of course, but uh, how do you see him as a potential future first-rounder? For me, that might be a little bit aggressive. Um, I, I will say, you know, I, I really did like what we saw out of Bichette before the injury. I mean, he was, you know, he was amazing. Um, I, Bichette's funny because this happened with him last year. The first two weeks of the season, he started like gangbusters, and then he didn't struggle exactly, but he really dropped off in the last... 30 games or so. I think he played 40, 45 or 46 in 2019. So I would like to see some sustained performance for him. I think he might just always be a streaky hitter though. So I, I guess that's where I'm kind of wondering about the first round is that, you know, obviously if he can, you know, hit like this, you know, throughout a full season, you know, if you extrapolate, you know, even his career numbers into like 120 games, it's 30 home runs and 15 steals, which is, is terrific. Um, I, I just wonder with Bichette, you know, the, the first time he slumps, um, he, he's not a high strikeout hitter, but he also doesn't walk a lot. And I know sometimes I've, I've seen with hitters like this, the quality of contact can kind of vary. I kind of want to see what Bichette does when he goes through his first prolonged slump. And because of the injury, you know, because he came up late last year, we just haven't seen that. I probably see him right now as more of a, a second or third rounder, but it's nothing against Bichette. It's just because I haven't seen enough of him, you know, over a sustained period. I suspect that because of that, you know, if, if he doesn't play another game this year, I might lose out. Um, but those top rounds are so thick with talent that if someone takes him late in the first round, I'm kind of willing to shrug and go, okay, I, I didn't get Boba shit. Yeah. I'll take somebody else. How much of a worry is a knee injury for a guy who's going to generate a fair amount of his fantasy value through stealing? I think it's something you have to think about, you know, because, you know, at some point, I think, especially nowadays with more and more teams not wanting to run, um, you know, the, the Blue Jays might be like, yeah, you know what? Like, we're, we're not going to, you know, put the red light on. We're not going to let you do it. I mean, we won't know until we see what the recovery looks like, but it's certainly something to think about. You know, if, if Bichette, who you were hoping to get like 20 or 25 steals from, only steals 5 to 10, that, that certainly matters. And before we move on, Mike, a couple of veterans having terrible years, and I'm wondering if you just think these guys are cooked. Edwin Encarnacion's hitting 160. Gary Sanchez is around 130. They have a few home runs each, but single digit in the counting stats. Otherwise, either of these guys uh, holding any value interest for you for 2021? 
Now, in Carnacion, I'd probably say no, you know, outside of like, you know, a deep mix or, or ale only, you know, he, he just really, you know, he's kind of on the older side. I, I know some of it's just the small sample, but you know, he, he's kind of always been, been slowing down a little bit. Boy, San- Sanchez, I, I, I just don't know. You know, I, he, I was kicking myself in tout when I think he went for like 15 or 16 to Larry Schechter, even with the, the strategy I was doing, I didn't take him cause I was focusing on, on base. Um, but yeah, he's, he's been terrible. And I know some is it, you know, the Yankees have missed some games and, you know, he's had some layoff of that, but you know, 41% strikeout rate, you know, just barely hitting the ball. It seems he either hits it over the fence or he, or he strikes out. Um, yeah, I, I just, at this point, don't know what to make of Sanchez. And I feel like he, he's, I don't think he's cooked. I mean, he's certainly get more chances, but I feel like he should be somebody else's problem at this point and, and not mine. 16th to Larry Schechter, you're right. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, uh, you mentioned uh, during the season I like to ask our experts about boons and banes for the balance of the year. Any rationales work for me, whatever you like. But uh, let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners, starting in the American League with a boon hitter. So here I'm going to pick somebody who I didn't like coming into this season, and you know instead of taking a victory lap and, and saying I'm right, I'm going to you know say why you should buy in if you can, uh, and that's Raphael Devers. So you know Raphael Devers had a great season last year. Um, the reason I was kind of turned off on him is I didn't think he was a 3.11 hitter. I didn't think he would. He didn't run very much in the second half. I thought that might go away. Um, you know, Devers has really struggled this year. And I, I think some of it is probably just the environment in Boston. You know, it's a losing team. You know, it's kind of hard sometimes, especially for a younger player to get motivated. Uh, but I also, on the other hand, I think Raphael Devers is is better than what he's done so far with a 222, 272, 402 slash. Um, you know, if somebody's looking to sell on him or, you know, in, in the odd shallow mixed league where somebody dropped Raphael Devers, you got to be all over that because the power is certainly there. He's a talented hitter. Um, no injury that I'm aware of, so he he should certainly you know pick it up in the last month. In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a boon? Um, so I'm going to go with another third baseman, and that's you, Eugenio Suarez. Uh, you know, so Suarez is is somebody who you know has also kind of struggled. Um, you know, oddly enough, some of that struggles in batting average. You know, if you look at his on base, he's not nearly as bad. Uh, but the power is there for him. You know, he's got six home runs and 119 plate appearances. I uh, hit 49 home runs last year. You know, obviously can't do that in the short season, uh, but really good power hitter. I think there's a, an average correction coming. Um, you know, he's still walking. The strikeouts are kind of around where they always are for him, like 25%. So, you know, really talented hitter who, who another one I think should take off in the last month or so. From your lips to God's ear, I've got him in a competitive league that I'm in, uh, mixed league. Uh, over to the mound, uh, who's an American League pitcher who could be a boon? So the spoiler here before is I, I said it'd be a Cleveland pitcher, and that pitcher is going to be um, Aaron Savali. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Savali is somebody who really flew under the radar before the season. Uh, Cleveland has a great track record with guys like this, you know, of getting the pound the zone, you know, getting the trust their stuff, you know, getting to throw quality offerings within the zone. And Savali, you know, so far, I don't know how much you've seen of him. He, he just looks great. And, you know, will he be as good as the other aces on that team? You know, I, he, I don't think he'll be as good as Bieber or Clevenger. But he, his value really has has shot up for me, and he he's somebody who, you know, I, I have a couple of I haven't been a couple places. Um, you know, he's someone if you can get, I I would get. Yeah, he's walking less than a guy per uh, game and uh, ten strikeouts per game. Man, that makes a great strikeout to walk ratio, and you got to love that uh, National League pitcher who could be a boon. Yeah, so I'm gonna go with someone who's a little bit more of a sleeper here because the first three, especially the hitters, were were kind of obvious, and and that's Alec Mills on the Cubs. Uh, so I like Mills for a couple of reasons. I like him because even though he's not a high strikeout pitcher, 
Um, you know, he, he's doing a good job, like limiting hard contact, um, you know, his, or quality of contact. Um, he's doing a great job mixing up his, his pitches. Uh, he throws four pitches. He throws mostly a fastball, but, but he's got three other, you know, pitches. He's really done a good job keeping, um, the other teams off balance. And the other thing I like about him is, you know, look at the Cubs schedule. The Cubs have a pretty favorable schedule down the stretch in terms of those central opponents. You know, I know it's a mixed bag for, you know, everybody and how that shakes out and all the cancellations and double headers could change that. But as of right now, I kind of like Mills down the stretch as a sneaky, like favorable pitcher because of the schedule. Alec Mills is one of the guys Ray mentioned a few minutes ago in our national league player watch. Uh, Mike Janela's Boons, Raphael Devers of Boston, Eugenio Suarez of Cincinnati, Aaron Savali of Cleveland, and Alec Mills of the Cubs. Let's move over to the Baines. Mike, these are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Again, we'll start in the American League with a Bane hitter. Um, so I hate to mention this guy because he's on my tout team, but it's uh, Jacoby Jones. Uh, Jones got off to a really fast start. He looked great. Um, those numbers have, have kind of tailed off in, in the last couple of weeks. The strikeout rate is still high. Um, also he's not running. He, he's got no steals. You know, a big part of Jones's game was presumably going to, going to be his stolen bases. And so, you know, the thing about Jones is as much as I, you know, as much as I like him, you know, as much as I think he was a bargain for me in town, cause I got him for you know, almost nothing. I think he's a little, little too owned right now, especially I, I look at the ownership percentage in CBS. I was surprised to see how high he was. Um, so, you know, if you're hanging on to Jones and especially if you're in like a 12 team mix, I, I think it's probably time to, to move on and, you know, think about going elsewhere. He's just not a hitter that I, I necessarily, um, trust right now. Yeah. Striking out 33% of the time. Never like that. Uh, in the national league, who's a Bane hitter? Um, so he's gotten off to a good start and I, I really hope he keeps it up, but, um, somebody I'd sell high on is, is Will Myers. Um, you know, Will, so Will Myers is a hitter who, um, you know, we, we've kind of seen these streaks from him before. I mean, you know, he's certainly a talented hitter, but he almost always seems to get hurt. Look, I'm not a believer in injury prone, so I, I don't want to say that. I, you want to be careful about putting that label on somebody. And it's only 60 games. Maybe he stays healthy. Um, but he's not running like he used to run. It, it's just, it, I shouldn't say it's just power. He's got eight home runs and 120 plate appearances. Um, but if I had to make a bet one way or the other on, you know, whether Will Myers is going to, you know, continue at this torrid pace or, or fall off, I'm going to bet he falls off. Uh, so Will Myers in, in the National League. Um, I hope I'm wrong because I have a couple, I've him in a couple places too. But if I had to place a bet, it'd be Myers. Once again, back to the mound, American League pitcher who could be a bane? Uh, Dylan Cease. Uh, so Cease is an example, you know, and I know it's his FIP, but, you know, baseball prospectus, we have deserved run average instead of FIP, which relies on quality of contact. And Cease is just an accident waiting to happen. I know he's got a pretty 3 1 3 ERA. Um, but all, all the measures say that there, there's just some, you know, bad stuff going on here. I know that, um, we talked about this with the central already extensively. Yes. You know, the central should help him, but, um, if he's got a matchup against Cleveland or Minnesota, one of the tougher NL central teams, definitely sit him and, and don't take the chance. And finally, a national league pitcher who could be a bane. Um, so, you know, big future for this guy and I, I still like him, but for this year only Julio, Julio Arias on the Dodgers. Um, and kind of, again, similar thing. Now, interestingly, you know, his FIP versus his DRA is a different story. Our metric over at Baseball Prospectus doesn't really like Urias, uh, doesn't think he'll even continue this level of success going forward. Um, you know, just kind of not nearly the same, you know, quality of pitches in terms of what he's doing. I mean, he's got good stuff. I still look at him, and I think some of it's just a lack of experience. 
doesn't quite know how to use it. And I feel like he's a pitcher who, because of the short season, at a bit of a disadvantage. It's not like the Dodgers can, you know, ship him off the AAA or skip him too much, you know, in a season like this. So I'm not saying long term you should avoid him. He's definitely someone in dynasty or a keeper that you want to hang on to. And a one and done like this year, though, you know, if you're you're expecting a high end performance, I, I'd look elsewhere. Mike Giannella's Baines, Jacoby Jones of Detroit, Will Myers of San Diego, Dylan Cease of the White Sox, Julio Arias of the Dodgers. Uh, Mike, tell our listeners where they can read more. Keep up with Mike Giannella. Um, so you can find me at Twitter at just at Mike Gianella, one word, G-I-A-N-E-L-L-A. Uh, my podcast is Flags Fly Forever. Uh, that's on Baseball Prospectus. We record once a week. And of course, you can find my work at BaseballProspectus.com. Uh, it's mostly like HQ. It's mostly a pay subscription site. But like HQ, it is very well worth your money and time. I'll vouch for that. I'll also vouch for the podcast. A lot of fun. And and even if you don't like baseball, and of course, if you don't, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast, I'm going to hazard a guess. But Ellen Adair was a delight, just a delight for, as a podcast guest. And I'm going to check out her podcast as well. Do you know what it's called? The podcast is called Take Me Into the Ball Game. Um, and yeah, it's a great podcast. I mean, they, they talk for like an hour and a half. She and her husband talk for an hour and a half about movies. And it's it's a joyous podcast if you like that um, intricate level of analysis. Mike, uh, speaking of uh, a lot of fun and speaking of an intricate level of analysis, I appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, best of luck in Tout Wars. Uh, just as long as you stay behind me, I'll be happy and uh, I'll hope to talk to you sooner rather than later. Yep. Thank you very much for the invite as always. And you know, anytime you want to have me back on, I'm glad to come on. Mike Gianella is a fantasy writer and podcaster at Baseball Prospectus. We'll take a quick break now. Be back with our Baseball HQ commentaries. Hey, Texay! And extra innings next on Baseball HQ Radio. I'd like to do something called baseball and football because these two things are such a part of our lives, these two activities, and yet they're so different. The object of the game is quite different. The object of the game in football is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. I'm going home. I'm going home. Baseball HQ Radio. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's a taxi. A commentary on players who are on Major League Baseball's taxi squads, but who might get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. And here with a look at Yankees starter Clark Schmidt is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Hey, taxi! Beep beep! What do you think of Clark Schmidt? Back in 2017, the New York Yankees had enough confidence in Clark Schmidt's stuff to use a first-round draft pick on him, despite Clark Schmidt having Tommy John surgery only a few months prior to the draft. Now that's confidence. Armed with a nasty mix of pitches, including a 97-mile-per-hour fastball with sink, plus a plus changeup and a knee-buckling curve, often mistaken for a slider, and changing arm slots, Clark Schmidt is a tough act to figure out. 
and nobody doubts Clark Schmidt's mental toughness, according to the Ledger's Brandon Cuddy at NJ.com. Clark Schmidt has been called a bulldog by more than one Yankee staffer. They love his attitude. Through three levels of the minors in 2019, including AA, Clark Schmidt compiled a 347 ERA with 102 strikeouts in 90 innings. Asked on the fan, WFAN, if the Yankees will use Clark Schmidt this weekend, August 28th to 30th, Aaron Boone said, you never know. I wouldn't expect it. We'll see where we're at after Saturday, where we have to find some pitching for both games on Sunday. So hey, Taxi, beep beep, Clark Schmidt may be right around the corner. Pick him up. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his Hey Taxi comment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about opportunities at the halfway point in the short season. Earlier this week, as I mentioned, the baseball media started talking about baseball being at the halfway point of the 60-game short season. Well, it is halfway, and it isn't. And the isn't side, I think, offers a sneaky path to some potential fantasy profit. Now, you might say we are halfway done, in the sense that 20 big league teams have reached the 30-game mark in their individual 60-game slates, 11 in the American League, 9 in the National. But in another sense, you might well say we aren't halfway done, and you'd be right. Arithmetic tells us that 30 games playing 60-game seasons amounts to 1,800 games, and since they're playing each other, you got to cut that in half. The total number of games played is 900, and half of 900 is 450. You with me so far? Good. As of this discussion, Major League Baseball has played 443 games. We're seven games shy of reaching the halfway point overall. Of course, we're going to pick up those seven games pretty quickly, perhaps as early as Friday night. Barring rain, snow, meteorites, protest movements, plagues of locusts, disco demolition riots, a pandemic virus, a sheep on the field, that actually happened at a single-A game in 2016, earthquakes, insect swarms, extreme heat, extreme cold, hurricanes, squirrels, high winds, or, you know, something really weird. But here's the thing. Even after baseball gets to halfway, a few teams won't be at halfway. And that's where I think it gets a little interesting. Because of cancellations and postponements, as of Thursday, six teams had played exactly 30 games and 15 more had played 31 or more games. The National League West leads that pack. Four National League West squads are at 33 games played and Arizona is at 32. Five more teams right around the halfway point, 28 or 29 games. But four teams have 27 games played or fewer. The Yankees are at 27, Philadelphia and Miami are at 26, and those St. Louis Cardinals way back at just 22 games played because of their long time off with the COVID problem. You know what this means, right? If you could swap a National League West player, a Padre or a Dodger, and get a Cardinal back, you're going to get 11 extra games. 11 games. If you acquire a Philadelphia or Miami player, you'll get seven games profit, and if you get a Yankee, you'll get six. Now, even if all those Cardinal games come in seven-inning doubleheaders and all of those Padres, Giants, or Dodgers games run the full nine, which is unlikely, you'll gain 23 innings of play, which is seven or eight plate appearances, and that ain't nothing, especially in this short season. If some of the National League West teams do get to doubleheaders, of course, the Cardinals, Phillies, Miami Yankees advantage grows a little bit. 
And of course, if you're getting pitchers, the innings difference hardly matters since so few of them even get to seven innings these days. But seven extra games means Jack Flaherty and other guys like that get two more starts than a pitcher on one of the higher games played list. Now, before you rush off and offer Fernando Tatis Jr. in a deal to get back a couple of Cardinals, be aware that there are some risks. First, Tatis might create more fantasy value in 243 remaining innings than any Cardinal will in his 266. Also, there's a non-zero chance that St. Louis and some of these other low-game teams will just have games wiped off the books and cancelled entirely. Major League Baseball has already talked about that possibility and has said that win percentage will be used if teams don't get to the full 60. They wouldn't have said that if it's not at least part of their planning. Finally, your league mates will make fun of you on your league's message board or wider social media if you make a trade of a prominent player for a less prominent player just because of the game difference. And you know what I say? To hell with them. If you can deal Fernando Tatis and get back, say, Paul Goldschmidt and Colton Wong, I think it's a gamble worth taking. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 28th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 25 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition, Mike Gianella, a fantasy writer and podcaster at Baseball Prospectus. Mike is a lot of fun both in person and on his Twitter account, and he's an excellent fantasy baseball analyst, writer, and podcaster. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentator was Ray Murphy, and our Hey Tech Say commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. I also have a personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to your podcatcher and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. Helps us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday full edition featuring Jason Collette from Rotowire on the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Stay safe, wear a mask, and so on. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.